Directors Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting as one of the planets orbiting the now growing network. Here over at the Directors Club, we take a look at the films with a single director in each episode. Their breakout films, their career touchstones, their personal labors of love, and hidden gems. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you take a look at a director's body of work. Uh, come join us on the film journey, which this week comes in over in the land of Oz, Australia. I said, do you speak of my language? He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. And he said, I come from a land, land, land. I'm uh, Al. And I'm Brad, and oh. we're very happy to welcome Matt Gamble. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, well, welcome, Matt. Matt is uh, Matt's going to be our, our, our little bit of our guide through the, world of, uh, through the world of Oz and a particular genre that we became aware of while taking a look at the, at the films of this uh, director, an Australian filmmaker named Richard Franklin. Which I believe neither of us had heard of when... Uh, we were first approached about this show, so it was exciting to uh, delve into a director we were not as familiar with. And it's it ends up in us quite we end up finding us quite a nice secret world down under where we're basically not only like um, having a, dire- a director who has been compared with um, Alfred Hitchcock, but also as kind of a gateway to a whole kind of genre of filmmaking that I was definitely not aware of called exploitation. Uh, Matt, could you like uh, give a little en- enlightenment as to like what this, what the exploitation movement is kind of about? Uh, yeah, I mean, exploitation is kind of this catch-all term to describe Australian genre films, essentially made in the '70s and '80s, um, and it it covers a, an incredibly wide range and styles of film. Like it, it, um, it starts with kind of sex comedies, and then is action films, horror films. Uh, there are a few sci-fi films, uh, westerns, and uh, it's 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 kind of I mean the the simplest way to describe exploitation films is they tend to be fast-paced, a bit snarky. Um, they tend to have crazy camera movements, lots of of uh, uh, effects work. They tend to a lot of them tend to be gory, even if they're even if they're a comedy. Um, <laughs> and they're just they're very Australian, like they're like. It's it's an interesting style that kind of that covers all of them. They tend to all be low budget. They like to use a lot of uh, American and British actors in the films to try and lend some sort of credibility to them. Um, and a lot of the directors tend to be, you know, eventually crossed, across, you know, across the Pacific and and went to Hollywood and some had a lot of success. Uh, you know, Peter Weir's probably the most successful out of any Australian exploitation director uh, and others are similar to like Richard Franklin who, you know, kind of dipped a toe in Hollywood went, no, that's not really for me and headed mm. back to Australia. And um, yeah, it's to me, it's a really fun genre. A lot of these are films I grew up on uh, a lot oh, of them. Okay. Yeah. A lot of them I didn't realize even were Australian uh, until years later. And um yeah, I to me they're just I, I tend to be a genre fan to begin with, and these are exactly the kind of films that I that I enjoy. Like they are heavily on style, substance is sometimes there, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they're 
they're just they're fun like and they they do things where you're just like wow i can't believe i just saw that in a movie um and that's that to me is is half the fun of going to the movies is seeing something that'll that'll catch your eye like that and mm-hmm. probably a, a lot of people's gateway uh was george miller's uh mad max series yeah, I, I I would agree. Like Mad Max is easily the most well known of any exploitation films. Um, I think Fury Road has probably done a lot to help people realize uh, not not only how good a director Miller was and is still to this day, um, but just kind of the Fury Road is very much exploitation crank, crank to eleven. Like it is, it's the whole you know two hours of of insane camera work, fast pace. Uh, minimal storytelling, although I would I would argue it's a very visually storytelling kind of of style for Miller. Um, but yeah, like Mad Max, uh, Road Warrior, Beyond Thunderdome, like those are probably the best known exploitation films. Um, and if you if you like that, then it's an easy way to kind of start following you know down the you know the yellow brick road to these these other films, which can get mm-hmm. really crazy really quick. No, um, n- nice, nicely put. Like, um, uh, um, yeah, it's it's um, and this particular director we're talking, we're going to be talking about today on Richard Franklin. Like, it's going to be really interesting to contrast his lo- his kind of styles with um, uh, one of uh, De Palma, which as uh, as we you can hear from an earlier director's club podcast, you are you are quite the anti. <laughs> Yes, and, and, and it's and I mean, just like just in a really briefly, just what was what's your impression that you think Franklin does, quote unquote, right that De Palma does, quote unquote, wrong? Um, yeah. So for those that don't know the backstory, um, Jim asked me on I don't even know how long ago it was to do Brian De Palma specifically because I am not a fan of De Palma at all. Um. And so to do that, I made him basically promise to give me a Richard Franklin podcast. Wow. Um, because I went, this is this, you know, De Palma is is generally viewed as, you know, he is following in Hitchcock's footsteps. He a lot of his films are are blatant remakes of Hitchcock films. He uses a lot of the camera tricks that Hitchcock does. Um and Franklin is the same thing. You know, he he essentially remade Rear Window multiple times um, and just changed the setting. Uh, he uses a ton of, of camera tricks that Hitchcock does. Uh, but like one of the one of the main things that's different between the two is one, Hitchcock actually liked Richard Franklin and he hated De Palma. Um, but is, I just is that right. Yeah. Yeah. Franklin. um Franklin went to USC film school with Lucas and John Carpenter, and he did a big push to get Hitchcock films uh, screened there uh, and it became such kind of a big thing. I think the, the movie specifically we tried to get screened was Rope um, and and Hitchcock ended up calling him up and thanking him for doing it and he, he was able to get Hitchcock to come do talks at USC Film School. He ended up uh, ended up doing some studying under Hitchcock for a while. Uh, Hitchcock's widow signed off on his remake of Psycho 2 which was wow. kind of a big deal. Um, and fr- like Franklin is a guy when I like when I watch the two films, like I, I don't doubt De Palma has talent. Like he is a talented filmmaker. That's unquestionable. When I watch his films, though, I see someone that to me feels incredibly redundant and repetitive and doesn't really understand the reasoning for what he's doing. It feels more like a facsimile than someone that is 
taking the styles of Hitchcock, who is an incredibly visual filmmaker. Um, and a lot of that is because he was a silent filmmaker. And I, on top of that, then you add in the fact that to me, De Palma kind of fetishizes misogyny. And it just leaves an incredibly bad taste in my mouth when I watch his films. Um, most like there's certainly stuff I like in his movies, but I just feel like I'm watching the same movie over and over and over. And I don't feel like in general, I don't like, and this is feels like a cheap shot for genre films. I don't think his movies are really about anything. There's a couple that are, but in general, they're just there to be exploitative, which, you know, that's fine. (laughs) Um, but when I watch Franklin, like, I think he's actually, he actually, tries to develop characters he tries to create interesting moments and he is he's just much better at understanding why he's doing these things and when i when i watch franklin like one of the movies we'll talk about is road games i don't think de palma has ever come close to making a movie as good as road games um and i think road games is is bordering on a perfect film it's it's an impressive to me it is an art film that's that's hidden in this exploitation genre that is Ah. just so fascinating um, and it goes through so many different styles throughout it and where J- De Palma tends to do really hard changes in his movies where it's suddenly like it's it's like ratcheting over and now you're suddenly following this style or this kind of tone. Uh, Franklin is much more subtle and just seems to he seems to guide people along and it just it I, I just think it works so much better. He He is more of a director that slowly turns up the heat and suddenly you're sitting in, you know, in this boiling kettle of water while De Palma is kind of dunking your head in it the whole time. Mm. And it, it, to me, like I like, and part of the other frustration is, you know, if De Palma was not, I mean, it'd be one thing if De Palma, people liked De Palma and had fun with De Palma and, and that's fine. It's also the fact that Richard Franklin, who I think is this incredibly talented director who unfortunately died, you know, fairly young. Um, and pulled off some movies that are that are not only impressive but I think are 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 worth watching and and finding it is just kind of sits there in obscurity. Like I I think he's he's a talented director that I wish more people knew about. And and like I would say the same thing about George Miller, who up until Fury Road, most people would probably have no idea anything about him. Um, and I think that's kind of true of a lot of directors in exploitation. They're just they're just kind of not known, even though they're they're quite talented. Right. When someone sees Fury Road, it's like, I can't believe the guy who directed Babe did a movie like that. Yeah. Good. <laughs> or Happy Feet. Um, like and it's right? like, no, he did this. You know, this is a 70 year old doctor that decided I can make movies better than anyone else and then just did it like that's yes the um (laughs) right i mean one of the things that like watch while watching through these films then is is in fact like how franklin uh to me has like does these twists on it and i don't know how to to this what extent it's that like it's his setting or it's his active attempt to like pull the rug out from under you Mm -hmm. in the kind of films that he's doing but to me it was really cool how to see to compare what like like, has Hitchcock is such a great touchstone, right? He is, he is uh, like, a fountain of creativity in his director choices. His films have this visual level of mastery, but there's this super deep level of themes that you can delve into. And what it's, what's cool about, at least I find about the comparison, is that how De Palma takes the, takes the technique 
of Hitchcock and the and the and the settings as a launching point for his. I kind of treat him as like an epic vulgarian, basically. Yeah, you I know, think that's fair. Yeah, he goes and like does this to go to his pure id and like his pure sense of sensation and kind of leaves all like a lot of other concerns like, you know, plot or story or characters get to like tie for seventh place, you know, whereas Franklin to me, I uh, uses takes the takes some of the concepts of Hitchcock and uses it as something to graft onto his own stories, or at least that's my that's my general feeling. As the uh, resident De Palma fan in the room, I'll, uh, <laughs> I, I'll, get, I'll make some attempts uh, at defense, but I, I really, uh, in the same way that I might disagree with the dismissal of De Palma, I actually think a lot of the reason, the, the co- contrasting that points that you brought up uh, matter really true. I think that uh, De Palma, for me, is uh, a more a pure cinema guy. He he's somebody whose uh, camera works in in the scenes and uh, and and su- use of suspense goes to very high levels uh, for me. But I do agree he's he's got a bit of a mean streak, mm-hmm. and there is not a lot of uh, affection. He's the Louis yeah. C.K. His, of directors, right? It's not <laughs> a lot of affection for his his characters, but I- the pure stylistics overcome that for me. Now, with Franklin, I, I, I do have the opposite impression, where that uh, in addition to emulating Hitchcock and, and, and suspense, he, he he's also more of a people person, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess for me, it comes on how they, they look at their audience, and I think De Palma is incredibly cynical towards his audience, uh, and that's kind of the frustration for me, where I think Franklin is kind of giddy at like, let's take you on this journey. Like he reminds me more of, you know, Willy Wonka. Like we're going to go do something crazy and you may not understand it, but we're going to have a ton of fun. And, and De Palma is more like, I don't know. He's more like, um, he's just kind of a taskmaster. Like, and that's, that's frustrating for me. I don't, I don't need to be, I mean, he's not really lecturing, but I don't feel like he, he holds his audience in all that high of regard. And that, that is a frustrating thing when I watch his movies. Yeah. But H- Hitchcock himself represents uh, both sides of yeah. that coin <laughs> Very in much. different films. So you yeah. can have a film like The Birds or, or Psycho or Vertigo yeah. where um, it might be a little more in line with the, the coldness of, uh, of De Palma mm-hmm. when, on the other hand, you have films like uh, uh, North by Northwest or... Uh, Shadow of a Doubt or The Lady Vanishes that have a lighter touch that uh, that more represents Franklin. Right. And 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 uh, one other thing to bring up is that like and, and something that I think people should try to keep in mind when they like when they see these Hitchcock comparisons is that I kind of think it's a little sometimes people too often like take directors who are legendary and great and they kind of want to put them under glass and, and say that their films are like these like untouchable masterpieces that people shouldn't <laughs> mess with and and you know like for the the films on uh, the films of Richard Franklin and sometimes they they tend to be like a little silly sometimes they kind of have a winking knowing quality about like putting people on an adventure but strangers on a train to me does the exact same kind of thing it's like it's Hitch- strangers on a train is like hitchcock saying let's have fun let's see what we can do like with a pair of glasses or the world's worst carousel you know and and so it's mike it's good to try to keep that in mind that like this sense of like trying to go uh, of just 
taking a genre piece and trying to put some enjoyment and some entertainment through like interesting visual and thematic touches is kind of something that Hitchcock was uh, trying to do. Not all of his films were like a big Vertigo personal statement. Right, right. Yeah, I and, agree. Yeah, and so... Yeah, and so and and in speaking on like just trying to give like his own personal and a kind of special touch on a genre, I think it's um, uh, a, a good. Uh, he's had an interesting launching point with his first film, um, uh, the true story of Eskimo Nell in It's the uh, Western tale of a um, a, a very reprobate uh, person named Dead Eye Dick and his uh, friend and his want to be friendship with a a, a gunslinger and incredibly uh, and incredibly prolific uh, pro- proficient gigolo called named um, Mexico Pete who um, Dead Eye Dick can't help but watch through <laughs> various uh, saloon windows and they they strike up a very um, uh, you um, unusual partnership as they travel across the countryside, uh, heading over for an um, a lady named uh, named um, Nell, who Eskimo Nell, who Dead Eye Dick continually refers to as a a big wampa. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> that that might be my favorite part of the movie. That is that it has brought the what must be said in the Australian uh, wampa into into our lexicon. Now. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. The, the the wampas get referenced in such a dramatic manner that I like. It, I, I have to I have to confess that I was wondering if Lucas had seen or heard any Australian terms <laughs> on on that level. Um, now this is a film that like this is the film that kind of uh, was something that I was it starts off unusual for me is that I've never really seen a a western attempted softcore <laughs> comedy thing <laughs> and um uh, where it's kind of like I guess if you turn up the heat on your average Benny Hill skit it uh, and had that that's kind of what the first 20 25 minutes uh, was it for me it's the apple dumpling gang with breasts <laughs> well, I to think be fair, that's br- fair to be to be uh, to be fair Brad that would improve the apple dumpling gang <laughs> except um, I, I don't uh, know if it improved true stories of Eskimo Nell though <laughs> it's um yeah it is like that beginning that beginning part is very dedicated toward this kind of a uh, of a of a of a sex of a attempted sex romp, but they kind uh, well, but Dead Eye Dick is a little bit of like mm, to me eight kinds of misfires in that he is uh, when when your most memorable thing is that you have a hat that a pair of can can carry a bowling ball under it like it's a Flintstones character is a uh, well, that's a little bit unusual because for as 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 sexually obsessed as he is he's. Also dirty, smelly, filthy, barely literate, a coward, and um, <laughs> and ultimately he's kind of really quite sad. Yeah. And those are his good qualities. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but so so I I like watching this guy's attempted his continual attempts and and failures of like of uh, the sex romps while I was watching. I was um, 
I was just, I had to admit to get more and more irritated. But then he, there was a moment about 25 minutes in where he relates the story of like the, of Esquanel again. And, and then suddenly the film cuts to black and white and the sound completely cuts out. And it's just like Nanook of the North, like detour. And, 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 and you see like the dead eye dick who has one eye in the present time, but in these, like in these quote unquote flashbacks, he's has two eyes and, and he's trying, and he's trying to uh, running towards an Eskimo lady. And, and the whole genre whiplash thing was just like a, a, like a big splash of um, cold water in my face. Well, I'd, I'd like to do a little fan fiction here about how this all might have come about because <laughs> speculation w- what looks like it. What could have happened is that it was supposed to be a simple sexploitation, Porky's-esque uh, kind of softcore business, and then they brought Richard Franklin on board who went to film school, which (laughs) already distinguishes him from pretty much everyone else doing these kind of films. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's still got to be this kind of film. It still has to have uh, the raunchiness, the stupidity, the just dopey plot. But Franklin's like, you know, one day I'm going to make a real movie and I want to show that I've got some skills. So every once in a while, they'll interrupt um, just kind of the junk that's going on with some interesting shots, like there's a, a an action scene in a mine or a, a few right. uh, distorted use of uh, uh, shadows a, a, and whatnot, and then it ends actually with a pretty interesting shot where the characters walk into what appears to be a, a matte painting, yeah, uh, all these shots uh, are far more than this film deserves, <laughs> because you know you could you could have this kind of film school stuff going on to show he knows what he's doing, but in the end, the genre is the genre, and and the movie this movie is not in any way going to transcend that genre. That super interesting, Brad. Like I'm in that like I. I actually think I both hate and like the movie more than you. <laughs> but before I get on that, like Matt, Matt, what's your impression from when you had uh, uh, had a chance to see it? Um, well, yeah, this is this is the first time I'd seen this film. It was it was a bit of a pain to track down, and I was hoping it would be better <laughs> and worth <laughs> worth the effort. And it and it really wasn't. But I, I agree. Like, there's certainly stuff in here that I found interesting. I I don't. Do you guys know that this is actually based on an actual like poem? Um, uh, some sort of like Canterbury Tales of its day. Yeah, like and it's a, like, like a, a ro- it's like a body kind of sex poem that was, and it's kind of like not quite in a limerick style, but like I know enough about it that like when I'm watching this movie, it confused me because in the poem, Dead Eye Dick is supposed to be like he's supposed to have a huge penis. He's supposed to be like this big sex god, and Mexican Pete is like this gunslinger. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, this isn't any. <laughs> like what i know (laughs) like it they kind of switched to a degree they kind of actually they probably they pretty much put all of the good qualities on mexican pete and then just made dead-eyed dick this kind of sad sack kind of loser yeah and i ended up reading some stuff on what franklin thought of the movie and he he said what he was trying to do was recreate 
sort of Midnight Cowboy, which made a lot more sense when, <laughs> when I watched it, that Dead Eye Dick is essentially Ratso Rizzo. Wow. Um, but I'm like, that totally doesn't work. It, do- it doesn't work at all. Like, <laughs> yeah. I appreciate what you're trying to do. There's a lot of Australian humor in here that I straight out didn't get. Um, <laughs> like, when they run into that friend... Yeah, he might as well have been speaking in like I don't know Cantonese. I like I couldn't yeah. understand anything he was saying. What the like clearly it was meant to be funny and playing on Australian stereotypes that I don't know. Yeah, and... I think yeah. If I was if I was to rampantly and horribly <laughs> ignorantly speculate, I think we at that moment we were seeing the Australian boomhauer. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, and so like it, to me, it was just. I, I think there was ambition into the film, which is kind of weird seeing in a sex comedy. Um, but I think ultimately it just fell flat again and again. And I, I like I got pretty bored with it. I was I was really like, Jesus, this is 90 minutes. Like it could, you could have shaved 20 and I would have been <laughs> bored still. Um, but yeah. yeah, like it was it was a frustrating watch. Like there, there are certainly things I liked. I liked what they were trying to do, but I don't ultimately I don't think it was it was successful at almost anything mm-hmm. right and it was it, it was marketed uh that it was gonna be such a raunchy yeah. uh, sex comedy yeah but there wasn't really that much sex or nudity in it there were a, f- <laughs> a few scenes but it's pretty set on the relationship uh between the two male leads and and it opens with uh with dead-eye dick uh doing his uh voyeur bit yeah, uh, on uh, on Mexico Pete, who's uh, uh, betting a young lady, and uh, you think that he's basically watching her and following her around, but right. no, it turns out that <laughs> yeah. uh, that he's been following Mexico Pete wherever he goes because. <laughs> right, right. He's we, kind of the one he, the, the Ted I Dick's obsessed oh, with. Oh yeah, I yeah. was so when I saw it, I was so expecting that it would be that it, that there was going to be a twist and it would become broke back outback. <laughs> I was really sure it was going to that was the direction that it was going. Um, yeah, and just the yeah, I don't know if the if the poem really dealt with the relationship between Dead Eye and and Mexico Pete was like uh, was really dealt with in any particular way. I mean. But that's something that like that's something that the movie was coming in like came out from right field for me. Yep. You know, that like that well, it's about more much more about their relationship together. And and like unfortunately what failed the movie for me is the is Dead Eye Dick, the character, and and it's just a perfect in combination of anti character and anti performance from this uh, uh Max Gillis is the guy attempting to portray him because he is not sympathetic or engaging in to me in any way to the extent that i kind of like got really sick of like physically looking at him (laughs) i was like could you just dip him in something and just (laughs) just to clean him off you know but but i found that like but like brad said every so often you see a shot that you do not expect in an exploitation type film or like like what sex farce has like a like like two minute tracking shot across a bar yep. or incredibly three or 360 degree pan across the bar later. Yet at the same time, an undue amount of time is going to be spent in the saloon with the camera on the buffet for no reason <laughs> that I could figure out. <laughs> right. The never, the never consumed buffet. Yeah. But, but uh, to me, I found that like that what, when you realize that what, Deadeye was like referring to was not actually kind of 
that was not the had a tenuous relationship to reality and is more some sort of like extreme version of his wish fulfillment then I thought that was a super interesting choice because then it brought in all these flashbacks that were predicted shown in this silent movie manner it, to me it, to me it kind of like it, it kind of like some uh, like some people like to say that like you like want to be the star in your own movie. So to me, like if dead uh, to me like Dead Eye Dick was using that to like he couldn't be a hero. He couldn't actually ever work in this society. So he thought up a kind of movieola where he would be this hero heroic figure, and that's why it's shown in this kind of classic movie style. So I think I think it kind of gave a re- really interesting level of depth to it that. That does unfortunately get a little undercut by the fact that nobody who acts like Dead Eye Dick would ever be able to think, <laughs> visualize a movie in such lofty terms. <laughs> so I don't find it like really true to his character. But but the idea behind it, the idea that someone can make his own fantasy world, which is kind of what happens at the end, I think that was a kind of an interesting one, and definitely not I, definitely not the kind of movie I was expecting, you know, in a, a sex farce. You know, is uh, wait a minute, I you got your Bergman, Ingmar Bergman in my sex sex movie. <laughs> I, I'm going to take away a few of the points that you gave it uh, with the ending, uh, because unfortunately, it's the same twist and conceit of uh, of the movie Shallow Hal. <laughs> and, uh, and, and and so I can't give too much credit to uh, a, a plot point that has that much in common with uh, one of the uh, Farrelly brothers' uh, lesser well, efforts. Well, okay, that's li- like <laughs> Shallow Hell versus uh, Eskimo Nell, huh? <laughs> uh, I-, I wonder what the Farrelly brothers would do, ironically, if... Oh, by the way, that's, that's a really interesting point in that, like, like, the Frehley brothers actually would have made Eskimo Nell more explicit. Like, right? It, it's so presented as this kind of sex farce, and yet I think there's only, like, one pair of breasts or... No, two pairs of breasts that are exposed in the movie, and, and all the sexual hijinks pretty much disappear at the end. Well, and so, I, I, mean, I think they would have made Dead-Eyed Dick even grosser as well. Like, they... <laughs> I mean, that's yes. really their style of comedy, and they would have played that up a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's, which yeah, that, which that's, might have actually worked better, like making him more of a caricature instead of he was just kind of sad. Like, he, yes. like, <laughs> like I think I think they were aiming for caricature and they didn't really hit that mark. Like they never and neither with uh, Mexico Pete either. Like they both were just kind of there as characters, which was, you know, when you're when you're putting your entire film on their relationship and their connection, yeah. like that's that's a cardinal sin. Like you're you're dead in the water. Yes, and um, uh, right, and then uh, Mexico, Mexico Pete's like his portrayal is kind of the opposite in that he's kind of like a, a piece of meat with eyes, and his most notable, his most real notable feature is that I believe his suit was later used by Paul Hogan in some of the Crocodile Dundee movies. That's kind of like the most notable thing about him to me. Nice. <laughs> like yeah, but uh, but uh, I mean even then though, like I was very I I was very uh, taken aback in a in a by the end of the movie because I never would have thought I would got to like this kind of expressionistic look at like the northern lights how those guys were used I would have never expected that out of the first 30 minutes and and while it doesn't quite do the kind amazing genre twisting that say like the Baba Duke does it still was something that I was really not uh, really not uh, not expecting and that's shows some shows some promise um, Richard Franklin went then and then, then did a little bit detour more explicitly into um 
more explicitly into uh, the sex comedy thing with like this collection of different uh, sexual behavior uh, called um, alternatively the world of sexual fantasy um, and alt and phantasm, which I kind of thought. I, I kind of thought Brad would go search it out since he's a big fan of the Phantasm series. I, I, I'm a big fan of Phantasm with the PH, <laughs> uh, the, the, the wonderful horror series. But this is Phantasm uh, with just an F. <laughs> now, 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 we haven't seen this movie. Right, so I could only get really my hand. Judge, but we have seen the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> and it does uh, feature uh, prominently uh, Mr. John Holmes. Yes. So yeah, right. I mean, it is. This, I haven't seen it either, but I do know that it's. It is essentially a porn film, and I know Franklin used a pseudonym uh, when he directed it. So it yeah. was certainly something he didn't want to have completely attached to himself. Um, but yeah. Yes. Which is ironic because the movie has several sequences of, of stuff attached to people. Um, <laughs> like, I can say, you're right, I can say that, like, from the, the trailer, the two most notable ones is that um, there's a sequence where um, uh, where a couple are serving food on each other that looks like it's using the buffet from uh, Eskimo Nell. <laughs> and there's a scene about a boxer who is, uh, r- uh, who is like, uh, romancing a lady. And uh, during this semi-explicit footage, at least you can be reassured that he has his boxing headgear still on while he's doing these things. So it's like, you know, like, stay safe, people. <laughs> um, but, like, but he took, like, but the promise that he had, uh, that Franklin had in Eskimo Nell, got, uh, got a big, like, uh, got a big jump start, uh, at least in my opinion, with his subsequent film, uh, Patrick, in uh, 1978. <laughs> Patrick is a story of of a um, uh, guy who ca- uh, a young man who catches his uh, who catches his um, uh, step uh, step parents in in a uh, in an act in the bathtub and it causes a breakdown that puts himself into a coma and but the people who are taking care of this coma which I think he's had it for ten years. Um, Start uh, st- uh, at this small hospital are noticing some very unusual things are happening, and maybe this unblinking uh, comatose figure might be the uh, might be the cause of such things. And the main the main person um, taking care of him is a new nurse uh, named Kathy, who um, is uh, trying to go and put up a new life of her own, which is something that is something that is kind of. Um, a very interesting touch on this kind of on this kind of subject, and that like she's might be separating from her hu- she might be separating from her husband. She's trying to like go a little independent life in her own place, and how she relates with Patrick and how she relates with the other men in her life uh, provides a really interesting contrast. I find, uh, you, you know, because of uh, the genre, uh, Franklin's gonna be working in a lot of these films. Uh, there are a lot of twists and. Uh, we should give a warning that this is going to be a uh, spoiler-filled podcast. So <laughs> before we uh, ruin any surprises, now you know. <laughs> oh, that, that's fair. Although we'll try and hide as much of what happens in Link as possible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like, um, so like, Brad, what was your, your impressions on, when you, on Patrick? Well, I, I liked it. I mean, it, it, it had, it's a very modest film, and it's, 
job is is to is is suspense, and it succeeds at it. Uh, it Patrick himself is quite the presence, uh, sitting uh, laying in his uh, hospital bed, unable to uh, to move, being in in a coma, but with his eyes completely open. And which uh, must have been uh, quite uh, difficult for the uh, the actor uh, Robert uh, Thompson, and uh, he has you know a very eerie look. About once in a while, he will spit to uh, yeah. That is his the one <laughs> movement he's capable of, and, they, they, and 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 there's some attempted communication between Patrick and the nurse, where uh, you know uh, one spit for yes, two spits for no. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but but Franklin really contrasts right from the beginning because we see as Patrick not yet in a coma in the opening scene is uh, watching his uh, parents uh, in the bathtub. Uh, we see it through the reflection of a door handle. And yes. already we have some really interesting camera work going. And... Um, and, and just the ambition level is been ratcheted up. He starts off so strong. That first five minutes of Patrick to me is my favorite Franklin from what I had a chance to see because he like he takes like the energy out of like the, and this like this this tension out of like uh, the Patrick's sexual frustration of seeing his his parents in this state to like a Dario Argento level. It is like you see he uses this pure wash of red, uh, pure wash of like red color and. He's um and there's a great almost split screenshot where like the 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 couple in the act are reflected in a circle of a bedpost that's mo- that's moving up that's moving back and forth and on the other side is the uh, is a wall where Patrick is le- is leaned against like uh, oh my God you're just to me like you're just getting exactly what's causing this like and and the warped vision is all done through just like what one piece of furniture and a wall and lighting. Just really, really great, uh, great sequence for me. Patrick is a movie I think is really fun. Like it's, it's, uh, I think it's something that it's, it's to me it is a very it it is setting the stage for what kind of filmmaker Franklin ends up kind of becoming, um, where it's very much starts, uh, you know, it, it's playing in this kind of thriller and sort of horror and kind of messing around in in all these little genres, um, but it's 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 focusing quite a bit on character development. And when the lead is, is someone that sits there with his eyes open and doesn't move the whole movie. Uh, and it does a really good job of that. And it, it slowly just ratchets up tension. Um, it's certainly stylized throughout, but, but it's the ending of this or in the ending portion of this movie is such a different style and tone than what it is in the beginning. Um, and it's just a, it's a fun journey for me when I go through a movie like that, where it, it starts out where it is kind of a, semi-serious drama and certainly it's it's stylized in its presentation but by the end it is straight up in horror mode um it, this is also the first time that at franklin and everett deroche collaborate um everett deroche is is a screenwriter um that collaborates on a lot of my favorite exploitation films he's someone i had a i had a huge amount of respect for he's he, he, the theme of, of a lot of these exploitation make, filmmakers, uh, he also died early of cancer, which is something that happened to Richard Franklin. Um, mm-hmm. But Everett DeRoach is a is is just a very 
Uh, I mean, Frank Lloyd always talking about how he would write these massive scripts that he would have to tone down. But when I when I watch the movies they make together, or even the other films that he made with people, they always felt like really clean, simple stories that just got to the root of what was going on and were very efficient at at developing characters through minimal movements and a lot, you know, not needing huge exposition dumps or things like that. Like it has a very kind of punk feel to me. Like the, it's straight up. Um, just clean stylized storytelling. Um, and I think like it, it's, you know, the, the next collaboration is road games, which is a movie I will gush over. But for me, like Patrick, Patrick is straight out fun. Like you want to, it's so weird. It's, it is bizarre. You're watching essentially a murder movie where the murderer is in a coma. Um, (laughs) and it works like it, that movie shouldn't work. Like it's, it is totally ridiculous that you're, you know, you're watching essentially, it is kind of in that slasher sort of vein when your antagonist never moves. Um, but it works like, and it, it earns where it eventually ends up, which is what makes it so impressive and so fun for me. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. you talk about the writing and, and I, I'm always impressed with Franklin that he seems to hate plot holes. <laughs> and so he's very careful about uh, setting things up. There's a, there's a scare near the end that would make no sense whatsoever unless he uh, foreshadowed the scare with the use of a, of a lab frog uh, earlier. Yeah, yep. well, and I think yep. that's straight from Hitchcock. Like, that's, that's Hitchcock's style of storytelling is you have to set up whatever it is, regardless of how minor it's going to be to your point or whether it's going to be major, it is... It is always constant setup and reveal later, and I, I think that is exactly where he pulls that kind of stuff from. And best use of a typewriter, uh, <laughs> short of The Shining, because uh, uh, Patrick, uh, <laughs> despite not being able to move or do many other things, uh, has a pretty powerful mind, and so he's able to communicate uh with the nurse uh, via the typewriter, and just uh, the the script is so well written. What 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 he says, what he ho- what he holds back, how the uh, the reveals are just so deliberately paced uh, to to build maximum suspense. Right. I mean, he he does right. He manages to do a, a lot of like wonders in ratcheting up the tension through like like the sound cues and the cues of like the different dials as they monitor like Patrick's uh, brain readout like um, just the cross cutting between like between like uh, Patrick viewed at an odd angle and then something uh, something nefarious happening uh, uh, lower in this by the way this very very Norman Bates uh, realty level uh, hospital it's um uh, <laughs> it's a like a dead ringer for a dead ringer for the Bates uh, for the Bates house. Uh, and and I, I I also have to gush for Everett Roche. I mean, I want to see a lot more of what this guy has to write because because he actually he is does so good of setting up and paying off in all these different scares to the extent that like I don't even think that necessarily a film of that type necessarily deserves that because it's <laughs> like a film right because the primary idea of that kind of a film maybe is to like kind of shock you and is to and surprise you but but when you think back on these details like no wait that switch was flipped earlier and then you you're walking on this surface because you want to keep quiet and and all these details have all coalesce and they all make sense so it's like i have to tip my hat to the guy for like 
caring to make the story ha- have a, which has such an amazingly bizarre premise to be so consistent. Yeah, so I think well- they are they're such a good pairing for one another. Like Daroche is all about setup and payoff in in his script and his in his dialogue and his his character development. And Franklin is the same way with with his visual storytelling. Like they just they go together so well, and they're, they're, like you can tell, there's a reason why they work together multiple times. Like that, it's not often where you will have a director and screenwriter have that kind of just perfect syncing of styles. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it works so well. And Daroche is is incredible. Like uh, th- like uh, the movie I would point out of his um, that I think is called Long Weekend uh, that he wrote. That I think it, it it is an exploitation film. It is essentially an animal attacks film where it's two. It's a couple that have that are kind of not doing so great in their marriage. Decide to go on this weekend getaway out in the middle of nowhere and just kind of go camping. And um, it is absolutely fantastic. It is so well told. Um, I think it's probably one of the best horror movies ever made. And it's one of those movies that almost nobody knows anything about. And uh, it's it's an animal attacks movie in which the animals never really attack anything. It's actually the two main leads and how monstrous they are and how their relationship is falling apart and is actually, you know, affecting the nature around them, um, which is just such a larger scope for that kind of film that has any, you know, has no right to be that kind of that kind of movie, um, which is something that Daroche does. Like he just takes these like he takes these premises that are crazy you know a a comatose man that has psychic powers and he's going to murder people yet he turns this into this really interesting it you know it's partially a love story throughout most of that movie right. uh, between him and the nurse um and and how he's been terrorized throughout most of his life and while he is the antagonist he's also kind of the protagonist and it's just you're just sitting there going, wow, I don't know how you're doing this and pulling this off. Um, and all you can really attribute to is that's damn good writing. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. it, yeah, he, he is someone I, I would highly recommend people try and track down. There's not a lot of screenwriters where I'll go like this is someone you need to watch everything he's done. Everett DeRoche is someone, especially in genre films like they can throw out all sorts of crap but th- this guy is operating on an entirely nev- another level when it's coming to horror and thrillers and things like that yeah i'm very i'm a huge fan of 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 writers directors performers who do just exactly as you describe how they like take take stuff that like is usually treated so shabbily even by its own genre standards <laughs> and they just push it up to like give you these unexpected directions you know yep. i mean you in addition to how you're describing like how he how he manages to go and and get this uh, like such a tense situation and alter between like your attitudes of Patrick and how you're supposed to feel about him like all done on writing but then in addition to that it's kind of also about the main character Kathy's story and and it's and it's given all I mean it's kind of I guess a similar path to say Jamie Lee Curtis's travels or maturation in Halloween but it's given so much more tones to it about like about her status on relationships her her attitudes about her own independence I mean I actually think if you if you really want to like work in an angle 
like the fact that her typewriting, her job is being interrupted by Patrick <laughs> is a kind of an interesting note, as well as like when her ex, when her husband is trying to serve her dinner and it burns his hand because he's trying to do her job and that's not working thanks to Patrick. <laughs> like, and so the, all these fun details that all combine in on, but, but to inform character. And, and character and relationships. And on top of all that, it does a little e- nice exploration on topics of euthanasia. Like, and it's and not in a heavy-handed way either, but it's just, it's mentioned and it's actually debated amongst the characters. And the, the matron of this hospital and the doctor have uh, clearly have these different views about what to do about Patrick. Right, and, and we should point out that Patrick is not the only creepy thing in this hospital. Uh, <laughs> both both those characters are, are are played in full character actor glory to be uh, <laughs> as uh, disconcerting a, a, as possible with the the doctor uh, looking like a deranged Henry Gibson <laughs> and the, uh, <laughs> the the nurse coming out of black narcissus. Uh, yes, right. Uh, and they've all got their interesting uh, character. Oh, and there's another patient who <laughs> once in a while just sticks his head out and uh, and interrupts matters. But again, it it's a very Hitchcockian move to have these enjoyable uh, supporting characters uh, to, to shake things up. There's this wonderful scene where they, uh, they try to use a strobe light to yep. uh, right. <laughs> to get uh, a reaction from Patrick, which is just one of these great, you know, uh, isolated cinematic moments where it's like, okay, well, this is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and like yeah, and it and it's and it's super cool how like even at the at the end like it's kind of uh, I again I wouldn't put it so far as like the uh, but I think it's working in the similar territory to what like the Baba Duke does in that like in that there's a confrontation between Kathy and Patrick and Kathy is kind of reckoning with herself and her own attitudes like by having this conversation with Patrick and like they're literally I think they're both kind of like 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 getting sort of therapy, uh, ther- uh, having a therapeutic effect on each other. She will be the first of, uh, of many uh, Franklin protagonists who uh, will gladly walk into what potentially could be danger for their own uh, <laughs> reasons. Yes, that's, yes, that's, cer- yes, that's certainly true. Um, one, thing, one other thing I want to bring out about, about Patrick I found highly unusual is that I guess when you have the word exploitation at the end of your um, uh, genre, I guess the kind of go-to thought is that, like, um, that, of course, that everything's over the top. Everything's super hysterical. It's like, it like you know, it's like Peter Jackson crossed with uh, Sam Raimi or whatever, right? And when I was first hearing about the term on exploitation, since my major example of it was, like, the Road Warrior series, I hear about Patrick is an exploitation kind of horror film about telekinetics, and I was, like, thinking... Oh my God! What is this like? Going to be like you know, Fury. Uh, the palm is Fury squared. You know, <laughs> like just like have everything go and blow up, right? But um, uh, but I was really surprised by how like how subdued, like how restrained, like, and it seems like something that like something that Franklin was has like there's an there's an influence I've noticed at, at least in his first in in Nell and this one how he tamps things down. He wants, like, he kind of wants to keep things at like an entertaining and fun level, but not at a level of the, not at a 
exploitation level of entertaining people by showing things that are wild or out of control. Like I one of the one of my favorite sequences of it, it was when something horrific happens to a doctor who gets hurled onto a hallway and he's like he's breathing heavy and he's in shock and then one of the other patients just walks out in the hallway and stares and goes what 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 and walks back <laughs> walks back to his room you know so that's a particular that's a particular tendency that I was quite surprised to see from uh, from a ploitation kind of film so in fact maybe uh, I. I don't know how much this would, how much would, how much do you guys think it fits as a exploitation kind of film? Well, I mean, to me, like, exploitation is is such a catch-all. Like, I and it was something that was kind of added years later. Like, I like what at the time, like these kinds of films were just re- referred to as new wave films. Um, I, I ah. like there are certainly movies that are exploitation films that are pure exploitation films uh i don't think franklin really made a lot of actual exploitation films outside of his early sex comedies like i don't think this falls into it or road games or most of the other other stuff i think these are operating very much as classic kind of horror films or thrillers or or things like that uh i think peter weir is a guy that's not really dealing with exploitation um i mean i yeah, I mean, I think the idea, you know, when I think of George Miller and Mad Max, are those exploitation films? Probably, but I think they have a layer of artist art, you know, of of this artistic style to them that it never feels in this kind of it's gratuitous, but it just feels like it feels yeah. earned. Like, yes. Mad Max and the absolute insane things they're doing to get camera shots in there is totally gratuitous. But it totally is part of that world. Like, it feels like it's adding to the world rather than just there to be there. Uh, I mean, there's certainly other examples, like Howling 3 is absurd or whatever. <laughs> like, there's, yeah. there's certainly plenty of examples where it's absolutely crazy. But I think in general, like, I think these were a lot of really talented filmmakers that were just make, you know, allowed to do whatever the hell they wanted because nobody was paying any attention. And... Yeah, like I, I think, you know, I think there's just a lot of artistic sensibility in what they're trying to do. So it never feels in that kind of range of, of what like black exploitation was or a lot of like 70s, you know, American exploitation films, mm-hmm. um, where it's just straight out pandering and gratuitous. Right. Um, and yeah. so I guess that's, that's what makes it a little different for me. Like, yeah, these are, exploitation films but it's it's dealing something out it's doing it's dealing with it in a way that's very different than what you would normally think of as exploitation right yeah i i'd agree completely the uh uh patrick road games uh the these are movies that are uh suspense thrillers that uh are, are actually not particularly violent uh for the genre but you know i i Australia was such a, a young film industry. It really didn't start to get uh, international attention until uh, the late 60s and, and the 70s. And then you had uh, a few prestige directors uh, come about. But unless you, you, you were one of these prestige directors, you had to figure out a way to, to, to make these films cheaply in uh, a country without an established film culture. And so, uh, as the uh, documentary Not Quite Hollywood uh, points out, there became uh, th- there was a huge glut of these. And I, I think what ended up happening is someone like Richard Franklin, 
who is not is maybe a compromise between the two. He's working in genre, but uh, aside from early on, not exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, I guess it. I guess it kind of worked as a more uh, more of a marketing term than any than uh, than any uh, case. It doesn't. They're not making the kind of films. They're making the films about like these established genres, which, but they're not they're not putting it in a way that you would call it like say that you would you know, put the new wave moniker under it. You know, that that that's not act. It doesn't give off the kind of impression of what these films were doing. Well, and I um, think I think part of it too is you know Australia is a big car culture. A lot of this is driving culture too at the time, and this is Australia going you know seeing what is popular in the U.S. at drive-ins and making their own versions. And while you know, and because they're a newer film culture, like they, this is what their idea of, you know, a supernatural kind of horror film is, you know, and that's road games is, is, you know, is a, their idea of a thriller and, and things like that. Like not everyone is going to be Peter Weir and come out with picnic at hanging rock, right. and make this artistic, you know, right. period piece horror film or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, most of these people are just like, they just want to sell tickets. A lot of them are like Brian Trenchard Smith, who I think does dabble in, you know, exploitation quite a bit. And it's all about getting teenagers to the theaters and, you know, to the drive-in to watch movies and, and whatever is going to make, make it entertaining. And right. it, yeah, I don't, I don't think it ever, ever really gets way out there where it's, where it's totally exploitative. It's, <clears throat> but it is certainly dipping its toe in in a lot of these different films mm-hmm. yeah and it was and yeah and it and to me it just really is fascinating to go and see like that that this that the movement at least as from franklin's side was to like take these elements and show and try to give some depth try to give some different colors but still keep it all of a piece instead of just hurling things at the screen and seeing what sticks in people's you know amygdalas you know <laughs> well yeah and, and I, I think i think we'll talk about it later like you think of psycho 2 I think most people, when they think of Psycho 2 and what it'll be, and then you actually watch Psycho 2 and you go, yeah, this is what am I seeing? Like this, this is a movie that's so much better than it has any right to be. And it's in a direction I never thought the sequel to Psycho would go. In fact, it's, you know, it's a character study. <laughs> and right. to me, that's the way you how you make that sequel successful. Um, yeah. And that's what a yeah. good filmmaker does. <laughs> you know, not someone that's that just wants to sell tickets. It's someone who's like, no, I want to make a good movie. And I think for a lot of these directors, like that was their goal. Certainly ticket sales was nice, but ultimately their goal was I want to make a good movie. I want to show them that I can make a movie. And, right. and that and makes that that is what does You know, that's what guided this this whole movement, which is really interesting. Yeah, and now, like, and good lord, speaking of a movie that was better than anyone would expect it or think that it would have a right, uh, a right to do is, like, Franklin takes does his take on a, on the road movie and on um, and on Rear Window, actually, <laughs> with, his, um, uh, with his 1981 film, Road Games. It- Nobody's gonna mess It stars like Stacy Keach as a as a guy who drives a truck. <laughs> Note 
not a truck driver, <laughs> um, and who, quotes uh, who, who Keats. goes in like uh, who goes and sees who something. Quotes Keats. Mm-hmm. What's that? And like yeah, and quotes, like Robert Frost right. and poets <laughs> and, and like yeah, <laughs> right. The truck driver with a the truck driver with a soul. I think he even does some philosophy to his um, <laughs> dispatcher on the <laughs> on the on the radio. And he goes and like so he witnesses this he witnesses this kind of very weird occurrence and then and then notices that the person who like has taken his spot in a from a hotel room has um uh, is kind of uh, still uh, still with him on the road as he uh, as he travels across Australia. But then he's noticing the same uh, same groups of people as well, including like uh, including a very very careful person, a a guy running a bright red uh, a ride a motorcycle in a bright red outfit that he's calling Sneezy Rider, who is actually played by um uh the the same actor who played um Patrick, and a very persistent and uh, hitchhiker who's who he actually nicknames Hitch, maybe in an maybe in a nod to Hitchcock, um played by uh played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And and along the way, there's um, there's um, all sorts of just uh, not just twists on the story, but twists on the road movie, uh, twists on uh, thrillers, uh, twists on uh, kill, uh, serial killer films, and um, a whole lot of other creativity besides. Now, now, like now, Matt, you were saying you're a huge fan on this. What what do you think like makes this like uh, such a yeah, special to movie me? For this you? this is Franklin's masterpiece. Like this is. A borderline perfect film. This is this is a director at the height of his skills, crafting a film with such care and such confidence uh, that it is it is so impressive to me. the The idea that the title card and the character, you know, and and like the, all the, yeah, I'm sorry, the title card and and the introduction to the actors happens almost ten minutes into the movie, like the first ten minutes is all just character development. And here's Stacy Keach, you know, our philosophizing truck driver, not truck driver, and the games he's playing on the road to try and, you know, pass the time, which are games that almost any of us have done. Um, and then 10 minutes in is, now we're going to start our movie. And from there, he takes this really fascinating take on Rear Window in a in a car and and just builds the tension throughout and i just i think there's you know stacy keach i think is incredible in this film um i think the entire plot is perfect i think the tone in which they slowly build it up it's kind of goofy and fun at first and then just gets weird and then it starts getting creepy and then it starts getting disturbing and now it's starting to get worries you know and it just goes and slowly turns it up um I think the camera work in this is incredible from just the scene setting to the use of color towards the end where it certainly becomes uh, more Argento kind of stylized. Um, There's lots of little fun Easter eggs. You know, there's a fun little Hitchcock magazine in the back of his seat. Um, There's, you know, there's uh, to me like this is an absolutely perfect, great film that is so fun to watch. And has you hooked the entire time? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I, I also think this is his best. I, I think its relationship with with Rear Window is fascinating because Rear Window uh, was so based on an enclosed area, and Jimmy Stewart not being able 
to uh, to move, having having a broken leg and being stuck looking out of his window, and developing this uh, uh, world of. Uh, uh, of storytelling uh, with his neighbors, and you see Stacy Keach do this uh, same thing from the seat of a truck, uh, and, and the the movie points out what uh, a lot of uh, you know because there's it, it takes place along the major uh, thoroughfare of Australia, is that you as you're driving along you would necessarily. Uh, run into some of the same people over and over again. I also love how many quirks they gave uh, <laughs> uh, Keech's character. So <laughs> right. we have philosophy quoting, we have poetry reading, we have nicknames that he gives everyone. At one point, he yeah. busts out a harmonica. I, I, I love yeah. the fact <laughs> he gives his dingo a sausage and he, he eats celery. Like That, to me, cracks me up. <laughs> right, he's a right. health nut. Yes. <laughs> so, so the the dingo uh, being uh, not quite a dog, like an Australian wild dog, mm-hmm. whose uh, uh, one difference is that they cannot bark. Apparently, <laughs> right, right, and well, except until uh, well, with the except that, like, d- right, is the dog a dingo or a half breed or what, whatever, whatever, uh, th- because. This it shows that this movie actually is working on all these ideas of identity. You know, like like I, I like Stacy Keach's character. Um, I, I don't know how and, and you guys uh, and and you guys uh, chime in on this. I think there's a t- an attempt to like show that he might not be as innocent as he seems. You know, like like um, he's constantly mistaken for the killer for one thing, and and there's a point near the end where he kind of takes on a character in a method very similar to how the killer behaves, despite the fact that he had no idea how the killer dispatches his victims. You know, so... Right, and and the the film shares Hitchcock's uh, fear of the police. (laughs) Right. So some of the more suspenseful scenes are when he's uh, confronted by the police, and uh, uh, of course they might get the absolute wrong impression. Yeah, like he, like... Like uh, he behaves in a really like he behaves in a really weird manner to the police. He like there's a a pretty funny sequence in where he picks up this um, a chattering older lady like out from the middle of nowhere and and she is absolutely convinced that he's the, <laughs> that he's the killer and and they they both have this pretty fun argument like right at the edge right at the edge of a cliff. Which by which which is I I'm not sure if that's like a famous feature in us in the Australian landscape, but it's presented several times. Like it's like as the truck is traveling alongside, like it's it's like has a jagged like lower edge on the frame. Also, for for uh, economic reasons, uh, a lot of Australian films uh, imported American actors uh, to uh, build the, the box office, but. In this case, it also leads to uh, an artistic benefit because being uh, Stacey Keach being one of the only Americans, uh, the other one being uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as the hitchhiker he picks up, uh, there's an outsider uh, quality they have where, yeah. you know, e- even though he's obviously been driving a truck in Australia for a while, there's still a sense, well, you know, he's still a little vulnerable he's still not quite of the uh 
of the landscape, which it, 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 it has in common with uh, uh, another film set in Australia called uh, Wake and Fright. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and like it just and actually it occurs to me that like that just in, just like in Patrick, he kind of sneaks a little social commentary in because because I think the lady and her husband were kind of like on the run because they were illegally <laughs> selling meat to this particular area, which has been like which had like like meat shipments banned, and yet what is Stacy Keach carrying in his truck? And what's he what's he traveling? He even he even can't pass the weight class when his uh, truck gets weighed. <laughs> also, for all the the Hitchcock illusions, uh, the other film that that I think must have been a big inspiration here is yep. uh, Steven yep. Spielberg's <laughs> Duel, because yes, there sure. is a lot of uh, of back and forth of uh, of vehicles appearing threatening and and a truck. Although in in, in Duel. The uh, the truck was the antagonist, and here the truck is the protagonist. Uh, yeah, um, uh, yes. Although, like the although, it does make uh, its presence felt near the end. And like, what is the what I think has been dubbed like <laughs> the slowest chase sequence in in history? Mm-hmm. Like that's a <laughs> it's it's super interesting how they thought that this is how you're gonna this is how you're going to end the this is how you're gonna end the film. And like, I mean, the the film is like to me has like this wealth of super fun details and quirks. Like I didn't even notice that magazine that you were mentioned, Matt, that's in the back of the, that's in the back of the truck. Like, but I noticed there was this really, this kind of cute detail when he's in a, he's in a bathroom and, um, and someone wrote some graffiti saying, Oh, this lady's like this. And someone scratched out the, the noun at the end and wrote something else. And someone then scratched that out and wrote something else. And the, this happened three or four more times, and someone just wrote <laughs> at the bottom, ah, fuck it. <laughs> and, um, and like, and what do you guys, there's a particular detail I want to ask by you guys where Jamie Lee Curtis's hitchhiker appears three times in the mo- before she's eventually picked up. But every time she's picked <laughs> up, how does she get ahead of him? And why do you think that they would? That's some detail in the movie. Why? What? What's? What do you think Franklin was trying to do? Uh, to with me, that? just the assumption was she was getting uh, she was getting rides from someone else. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if if there was any sort of play on it. I know Keach has some line about third times the charm when he sees her and finally picks her up. But yeah, I don't I don't know. It could have been all just to set up that little joke. Like there are certainly a couple of those moments where it's it's clear like all he's trying you know the barking dingo at the end like that is he you know he spent 30 seconds explaining how dingoes don't bark all to kind of set up his punchline at the end while it also is what is what reveals where you know the body is at the end as well um like yeah Yeah. i mean to me that's just i think a lot of it is that's just how franklin and and to a degree, DeRoche just work like everything is a setup for a future payoff. It doesn't it doesn't have to quite make complete narrative sense, but it has to work. And and Jamie Lee Curtis being ahead of him, a truck driver. I mean, I think most people assume truck drivers have to stop. They have to take breaks. They can't keep going. Like it it at least there's a, there's enough logic there in most people that oh yeah she could get ahead if if these other you know these other cars kept getting ahead of him as well. Like it was just this repetitive theme. And I think that to me, it was that, you know, that's just how driving on the road is. You're going to see the same thing over and over. And when you go on a long trip, there will be times you notice there's a car you were ahead of, you know, you pull off, you get back on and you'll pass him again. I, I, a lot of his games that he played early on 
I think is all setting it up so you go, oh, I understand. I I recognize that. I've I've been there. I've been bored and just trying to come up with things to help pass the time because I'm driving for five or six hours or however long. Um, yeah. It. Yeah. Good. Uh, I. I mean, I can't emphasize how well St- Stacy Keach does in in this particular in this film because he he does kind of multitudes in it. Like like the, it, like. He, for one thing, he is so good at like a guy at showing like he's slowly losing his mind as the different <laughs> levels of boredom and tension on along his trip just make him like act more and more crazy. Like he's able to like have these monologue conversations with himself that like um uh, that remain compelling and interesting. Like um he 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 interacts with that dingo really well. Like he like <laughs> they make a fine they make a much finer partnership <laughs> than say BJ and the bear might. Um <laughs> um. And and like and and he does under that he does do that hint of like he does do that hint of like somewhat distrustworthiness like I really like that scene where he's trying to tell the police at that one outback at that one outback um, mm-hmm. uh, restaurant bar area and like the way it's filmed is cool because there's these like this deranged mural of the uh, of of like some savage <laughs> ritual on the tele right behind the telephone booth and it's kind of does a full pan just like Eskimo Nell does all the way around the bar to see the all these different denizens and as he gets more and more angry he just puts out his name it's quid ends in d <laughs> d is in dead girl for, and then, like everybody kind of stops what they're doing <laughs> but why would that you know why would that come to mind right <laughs> yeah it's it, right, yeah and 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 then like um and it, he has to go through so many tones, right? So where he gets to one scene where he's comic, but another scene where he like he fe- where another scene where he feels protective of Jamie Lee Curtis. But there's other scenes which I give great credit to the movie and to Roche's writing, where he's legitimately pissed at her because he kind of thinks that she jumped she jumped from his um from his cab to just get in uh, get in yep. a, a sexual relationship. Right, and, and he's got this kind of insecurity already established because the first yep. murder victim, he just kind of assumed that, well, if uh, if he had picked her up as a hitchhiker, right. then they would have hooked up. Oh, my God, you know, that's, that's yep. a, God, Lord, that's a great point. <laughs> Who could resist the key? Well, and they also, I mean, they had a moment of sexual tension before that. Like, it's all, like, not only do they set it up with this is how it's, He's already jealous of this guy in this van and kind of overly obsessing about it. But he's also had this moment with Jamie Lee Curtis and whether or not, you know, maybe there could have been something that happened. And maybe she was conning him. He doesn't like. I mean, he think even talks. He's like, at least she didn't get my wallet or something like that, as he, he says to himself. That's right. Yeah. And then they and then they are like like over in the rest area. He has this like he does something that's kind of like. A ver uh, of a bit of a dick move where he just leaves, <laughs> you know, like he just like well, you know what, you know what, maybe this stuff isn't my problem, which is like, <laughs> whoa, that's kind of refreshing to see from a, a kind of a thriller who people feel that like they're in a in a in a place they have to they have to work through that. It's like he's just like, nah, screw it, I I, I got I got meat to deliver. <laughs> right for a movie with uh, familiar plot points, the tone is is so different. 
than the kind of thrillers we're used to seeing with this plot po- with these plot points that it it feels so much fresher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one of the things that also adds to that is I think this is a really good movie to bring up uh, another collaboration, uh, which is uh, the composer who worked with on a lot of uh, of Franklin's films, Brian May, and no, not that one, not that not, one, yeah, not not, not, not the, the guy big from hair, Queen, a, a whole different Brian May, but <laughs> uh, his score here is very distinctly non-horror and there's a lot of harmonica there's there there's a lot of uh really interesting uh, uh melodies going on that kind of contrast uh the, the, the that help the mood of the film separate yeah from it feels plot. very much like a casual kind yeah, of road like, movie hmm. um almost like an easy rider kind of feel which is why i think like that mm-hmm. first murder scene stands out so much like not only is it visually different the the sound is different and it's it that's the moment where you realize oh this is actually something else this is an actual thriller like when you have the killer all bathed in white and then you have that naked woman holding the guitar and she's got you know where i don't know where the red light's coming from but she's covered in red light and right it's so hyper stylized compared to everything else that it just completely stands out that, oh, something sinister is happening, but is it this guy in the green van? We don't really know. And is it, you know, and that's what's, that's kind of the journey you're on with, with Stacy Keach throughout the film. Oh, that's super interesting. Like, I didn't even, it didn't occur to me that, like, maybe the killer actually wasn't the guy. Yeah, I mean, that to me is all. how I think the movie, at least the first kind of half of it is kind of guided that it's, Keach, you know, he's making up these stories about these people and, he, you know, this guy in this van is pretty dickish and following him and he's decided, you know, because that woman wouldn't sleep with him, I think you can very much read it as he's just mad at this guy. Like, this guy got to sleep with the girl and now he's just, you know, now his head's just kind of going wherever that this guy's weird. This guy must be sinister. He must be awful because that's the only way, you know, this situation would have happened and oh my god that yeah that's a super that man that is a such a super cool point because uh because to me one of the things that the movie was i found them was unusual in the movie about like how it presented the 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 bad guy at the end he's like this like stacy keach mm-hmm. is like this big imposing figure and when you actually see the the when you actually see the person he has been pursuing he's this kind of <laughs> dirty greasy, sad, Harry Shearer-looking son of a gun, you know? And, and the fact that he's referred to as Smith <laughs> or Jones. Yeah, exactly. Like, he, he doesn't even get his own name. Yes! <laughs> he can't even get one anonymous yeah. name. He has, to, <laughs> he has to have a collection, you know? And, and that, like, and that, in fact, like, he actually gets to do very little to brutalize um, Keach, but Keach, not, Keach beats the hell out of him. Gives him a, gives him a, a solid, a solid thrashing. You know? And, and, and it and it also like so it's po- so yeah it is kind of possible that maybe that uh, and it also kind of explains how like Jamie Lee Curtis's character is a bit you know less uh, frightened in the situation than than you might expect if in fact he was the killer 
you know? And then remember how in the movie there's a really fun detail where there's a red cooler. And when you first see the red cooler, it's kind of moving like there's something inside. And then they make like almost in a Hitchcock like super close-up zoom to the cooler to show <laughs> some sandwiches are, <laughs> are in there. <laughs> so, I mean, he – so. So yeah, this is a that's a totally new impression, uh, uh, Matt, that I had on just by hearing uh, hearing that there. I wasn't even yeah, thinking I mean, about and that. That's, way. That to me is what I love about this movie. I think it's 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 making you identify with this character Keach and the weirdness that'll happen on a road trip, and then trying to tease this idea that maybe something sinister is happening, maybe something isn't. Like contrasting with Duel, in which something sinister is happening for eighty minutes. <laughs> um, but it's it plays in that same kind of area of is this really awful or is it not? Um, and it just kind of, you know, at a certain point, it finally is all in like, yeah, something bad's happening. We just don't know what it is. And then it follows that to its logical conclusion. But up until that point, I think this movie is operating on so many levels and cylinders like it's it's great. Like it's it can go in almost I, I could see up into the halfway point this going in almost any direction. Uh, which to me is really quality storytelling. Yeah, I would like just just to highlight like three individual sections to just show the kind of range that this is. Uh, this movie is trafficking, in which I really enjoy. Like that opening sequence again is another like like Patrick is another expressive stunner from from uh, from like uh, Richard Franklin. Like in addition to like all the, what you described about the use of the light and the smoke and the color. But in addition, the fact that the lady is playing like a guitar and the mm -hmm. way she's scraping against the strings as yep. you see a close up <laughs> of the wire approaching her head is just like is is so super something I find like so super cool. It's like it's like like because what she's trying to, you know, practice is something he's trying to practice in his own way, you know? And, and that's, you know, that murder scene alone takes it out of the exploitation range that we were, t yeah. we were talking about before because it is so ar artistically rendered. Yeah. And, uh, 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 Matt, you were mentioning the white light coming out, out of the bathroom as, as the killer emerges and, uh, you know, kind of bringing back the... Uh, uh, De Palma comparison that that sequence kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, the art gallery uh, mm -hmm. sequence in Dress to Kill, oh, yeah. and and, uh, and in the way they both, you know, you know, yeah. There's a lot of differences between the how the two directors approach Hitchcock, but sometimes they merge. Yeah. And then, like, and then, like, I would also want to highlight that halfway through, it merges in with National Lampoon's <laughs> Mad Max Vacation when a guy called a guy called like I think his character <laughs> name is like Mister Safety, <laughs> uh, like is. Uh, uh, he he gets irritated by Stacy Keach earlier in the earlier in the movie, and so there's a weird sort of chase between a car, a truck, a, a, a car, a truck, and a boat. <laughs> and I think they uh, there's a wonderful little detail where as the car is swerving around the road with the <laughs> boat attached, it cuts to like a little <laughs> bell on the boat in the <laughs> that's ringing. <laughs> they, they call him Captain Careful. There you go. <laughs> right, Captain Careful. Yes, and and I, I and I I just finally want to highlight that. There's a particular sequence where he needs to keep these frozen meats uh, at a certain temperature, and you slowly see you you zoom in slowly on a temperature reading as he's driving as the temperature goes up. When he finally notices, you just get this. 
He goes in and sees what's inside, and that's such a sustained. I, I love tense that scene. Sequence like, that that scene is so tense and so well shot, and incredibly well done. Like to me, that's the moment when you realize something is really wrong now. Um, and I like, and they they haven't really done that level of tension throughout the movie up until that point. The murder kind of has plays with it, but nothing like that. Scene's a couple minutes long, and it is. It feels like the killer is about to jump out at any moment, and and it works yep. so well. And towards the end, and then then everything that's after, where he's sitting there having the conversation somewhat out loud and somewhat in his head, is fantastic as well. Like it just plays off it so good that oh my god, something is actually wrong. Uh, and yeah, I I love that scene. And and then the and it and and as when he starts talking to himself, there's one other tiny detail which I don't know if Franklin thought of it or Roche thought of it, but I thought it was brilliant. He's he's driving and he sees them some like red taillights of a car in front of him, and the taillights are moving across the windshield so they <laughs> eventually inhabit his eyeballs. And just like, oh wow, that mm-hmm. is yeah, what is like such a such a cool detail and like um. Uh, so so I'm very very happy to have seen to have seen Ro, uh, to have seen like road games because it gets to all these levels that you would never out and expect in a kind of road movie and and even like you know and even from our conversation here I already have like two or three new ways to think about it so any film that can do that from is awesome in and of itself but from that kind of origins makes that kind of you know extra special Look at the faces, listen to the bells It's hard to believe we need a place called hell Place called hell The devil inside, the devil inside Every single one of us, the devil inside Devil inside, the devil inside Every single one of us, the devil inside in terms of like being able to like improve the improve the source material, like um, Patrick's next <laughs> movie had quite a task on his hands. I it makes me kind of very interested to know how he got um, how um, how much Franklin petitioned and how he got into directing uh, his next film, uh, Psycho Two from nineteen eighty three, uh, which ba- which focuses on. Um, uh, Norman Bates getting released by released on by reason of insanity, and then moving uh, back to his old motel and his old and his old house, and uh, to quote like a, a member of like a um, one of a uh, meetup group that me and Brad are a part of, uh, <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> and so I I guess the first I want to start off with this is is how did he get the gig and how much did he petition for it and. And how does a person who I clearly idolizes Hitchcock and his technique got to what did he feel to do a role of one of Hitchcock's most remarkable that, films? That I'm not really sure about. I, I the, the one thing I do know is that because Hitch, Hitchcock had already died by this point, and I know his wife signed off on him. So I'm, I'm assuming he must have lobbied for it pretty hard. This is his first Hollywood film, too. Um, so I don't like to me. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know that much of that backstory. It's one I'd be more. I'd be interested in knowing. I know. I. I know. After this, like Anthony Perkins kind of takes control of the franchise, but, but um, uh-huh. uh huh. To me, I like. Yeah, this. This is a movie I. I like quite a bit. Like I don't. I don't think it's amazing. I think it's 
way better than it has any right to be. It's one of those movies that I like to highlight as like, this is how sequels should be like, you don't need a sequel to psycho. Uh, but when you make it, make it actually something that's interesting and adds to the original. And I think this does a lot. Like I, I think, yeah. and the idea that, you know, that you make Norman Bates, the protagonist now and dive more into this character who is a really fascinating character is how you make a sequel to psycho. I mean, I don't, th- I don't think Bates motel exists if psycho two, isn't this good. Um, and you know, they, this, they, they create an entire franchise of psycho films after this. And yeah, this, this is a movie that I, I have a lot of respect for and is a movie that I think more people should watch. I, I think the assumption is this is going to just be, you know, sequel trash, just some cash grab. And instead, it's actually no. This is this is actually a pretty good movie, and it's it's yeah right. <laughs> yeah, I was very yeah, I was really surprised when I saw it because I like like you said, I was totally expecting that they would be that uh, that it would be Norman Bates spending the entire time at the motel, which is then visited by you know yep. this cheerleading squad and 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 this bunch of like Scooby Doo like amateur sleuths and the Harlem Globetrotters will be in the next movie. You know, like there is there like that it would just be this collection of people that get mauled by <laughs> mauled by uh, a person dressed as a mother figure and then um uh i was very surprised by the way mothers are <laughs> represented in multiple ways in multiple dimensions on here there is a lot more surprise <laughs> mother appearances than i ever was expecting <laughs> there, there there's a um probably uh one should be careful uh coming into this movie about expectations because i think most people would agree Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, one of the greatest films ever made, uh, an absolute masterpiece on on every level. So if if we insist that this film have the baggage of living up to that, I don't I don't think it does, and I don't think it's fair to expect that it does. So if we can put Psycho out of our mind and look at it as its own thing and say, well, how does this succeed as a movie on its own? And, uh, well, I don't think I, I quite loved it as much as as Matt does. I still found there's just a lot of cool things there. It did more than it needed to do. I mean, like, Al, you're, you're talking about kind of expectations of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, of the ways in which it could have been a Friday the 13th sequel with yep. uh, Norman Bates is just another slasher. But uh, but instead, you have without uh, with Hitchcock not there to provide the the complete structural discipline. Mm-hmm. What you get is a lot more of Anthony Perkins' mm-hmm. performance and a lot more of Bates' ticks and weirdness. Yeah, and it's and that's actually ratcheted up maybe a little too much. I, I was thinking. Well, you know, they had he had just gotten paroled from uh, the asylum uh, after 20 years uh, with uh, good behavior and whatnot. And I'm thinking, well, can't you just act normal <laughs> for about 10 minutes just to sell that? But he's he's pretty twitchy right off the bat. There was there's a scene earl there's a scene early in the movie where he's trying to get make a where he's trying to make a sandwich and um and this is kind of it it, it does a little example of um 
uh, of like kind of how Frank, a uh, kind of a way about how Franklin operates. Like sometimes in that, like some directors when they make a film, like you're just totally involved in the film, right? But then other other directors, what I think I would put Franklin in as kind of a contemporary of uh, of uh, Joe Dante in that level. They go and like they go and let the audience know that you're having fun with the movie, you know, like, so everybody who saw Psycho 2 presume knows about Psycho, right? So there's a scene where he, like, first off, he opens a drawer and there's this, like, sugary cereal, which, like, knowing his twitchy performance, I thought immediately, well, that explains it. <laughs> and, um, but then also he opens a knife and they're like, I think he literally does the, the vertical, <laughs> like, um, jaws, like, pan and zoom <laughs> thing to it's like, oh no! <laughs> oh no, Norman's, Norman's gonna be at it again. <laughs> But in terms of like, yeah, you, in terms of what you guys were saying about using the source material, I'm, I, I actually have kind of a, I think I, I have a kind of crazy theory about that that I want to run by that I want to run by you guys, and that is, Psycho and Psycho Two, the relationship between those, those two movies is kind of like uh, the relationship between Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant I think and Herzog's kind of Bad Lieutenant. I think <laughs> and, you, you know, I mean, because it's because it's like. They're doing the source, same source material, but they're doing radically different things from it. Like, like how how I was saying earlier about how like for stuff that's called exploitation, it's not very exploitative. But actually, I think Psycho One is actually way more exploitative than Psycho Two is, because Psycho One is, to me is all about oh, this is so lurid. Look at this girl sleeping with someone <laughs> in the middle of the day. And then she's stealing money. And then she's like, and then she's like, and then she might not, even, she might not give it back. And Norman's such a weirdo. And everything, everything about like, everything about Psycho to me is like lurid and, and scummy in a, in a kind of touch of evil like way, you know? Whereas this movie has its like lurid moments, but it's all tied to character and trying to explore these ideas of madness and and um, and like um, uh, familial loyalties and, and disloyalties and betrayals, and the possibility of redemption. That's right. And the the the, the possibility that uh, you know is Norman cured? Is he is he not cured? You were you were mentioning the scene where where the knife shows, and there's this wonderful moment where he's uh, going. Uh, he's being asked to. Cut a sandwich in two, and right. all he has this knife. And of course, he 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 can't <laughs> even say the word cutlery. Oh, uh, right, <laughs> he, right. He sees it and says something about the c- c- cutlery. Right, right, yeah. right. And the movie does get some interesting levels where he works as a chef, and so there's parts where he's get some. Uh, he gets put in a real tense situation, and um, uh, right, in, a, and, in a dive, just a what in a dive, right uh, in a dive dining. in a dive yeah. dive restaurant. Yeah, but then also like. Also, the movie's like bending our notions of reality of what we're really seeing in a way that, in a way that the original movie doesn't quite do. You know, like like is it gets us more involved in Norman's state of mind. Is he really hearing these phone calls that he's getting? Is he really getting these messages? And and to a certain extent, I'm gonna say it. I think it's unfair to like ding Psycho Two against Psycho One on that level because it's working as a different thing. That Psycho One was doing, yeah, I, and Psycho One never tried to do, right? Because because Psycho, uh, one of its great accomplishments, is switching protagonists on you. Yes, is is the idea that you're following Janet Lee throughout the first half of the movie, and then she's gone, and who are you going to follow now? Right, and all all you have is Norman, yeah, who you enter his headspace in. 
with horror. But yeah. in in Psycho Two, you're with uh, we are with uh, Norman the whole way. The uh, the lead um, female character is played by Meg Tilly. Yeah, and uh, she has she she is. Uh, Strangely oblivious to the danger she's in, even though she seems to kind of know what's going on with Norman. Right, right, right. And that's, that's, to me, I kind of like took it as a way that the movie's kind of messing with you by going like, because at that point, people had already been inured to the idea of like, oh, look at the idiot young woman. What's the, what's, what stupid thing is she going to do now? And I think the movie knows you as an audience knows that you're thinking that way. So I think it's doing a little exploration of that. Right. She also connects to the one actress, uh, who was in, uh, both, uh, psycho and psycho two, uh, Vera miles who played, uh, Marion's sister. Right. And in, in this, uh, film is, is Meg Tilly's mother. Mm hmm. Yes, I mean, right? It's, it's it's kind of a really cool move that the movie does that the that the most jarring exhalation of someone screaming out <laughs> "mother" is not done by Norman Bates. <laughs> and like, wow, I was not I was not expecting that kind of direction to to come in at all, you know? And 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 the way they like use the way they use Norman's mother as as like a physical presence, maybe a spectral presence, or maybe just an uh, the way it's used like as an identity that different people appropriate when they want to get their own ends. Norman's doing it for psychological ends, but at different points of the movie, other people appropriate that particular outfit. It's like, that's such a... Yeah. I, yeah. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. The, no, that yeah, I mean, that's that's what's interesting to me. Like, I think, to me... I think the scene in Psycho that Franklin is drawing the most from is the final scene where it's about how Bates has been so manipulated throughout his life and how he's kind of trapped in his own like personal hell. And that's what Psycho 2 is all about. It's 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 probably one of the better Hollywood films about like mental health and the struggle of mental health um, and how people are manipulating this tenuous grasp he has on it. And I think that's really interesting. Like I, and the fact they're doing that in a horror film um, and playing it against the type of what you assume this movie's going to be about, you're going to take the guy that was this murderous killer and, and the villain of your first film and make him a sympathetic lead throughout, you know, 95% of this movie is, is really interesting. And I, that to me is, it, it was such a novel take on the, on the, on the franchise is what really drew me to it and what I found. So, you know, I'm sitting here watching like, wow, it's all about all these different people who come in with their preconceived notions of Norman Bates and then them trying to manipulate him to fit into their preconceived notions. And all I could think is, isn't that what everyone is doing going into this movie? Like you're going in watching psycho Two, assuming like it, it's not going to be. It's not going to be Psycho. It's not going to be Hitchcock. It's not going to be you know Bernard Herrmann's score. It's not going to be Philip. You know, was it Philip Glass's? Uh, not Philip Glass, but um, whoever did the title cards. Like oh, it's not uh, going to be this Saul, Saul Bass. Bass. Yeah, Saul Bass. Yeah, sorry. Um, you know, it like you go in and you and the movie is going. You know what? We're not going to be that. We're going to be what we're going to be, and we're going to make a movie about you know, manipulation as you sit here and try and manipulate this film to fit into the category you want. And I, I think that's really kind of brilliant. Yeah. No. And I think that's, and I think in general, like the movie succeeds at it. Like it's, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great man. That is a super great point. It's like um, it's the predecessor to what Cabin in the Woods was doing, but using an ex- using an existing genre. I mean, way before like the Lord and Miller guys were, you know, <laughs> taking Twenty One Jump Street and having that work work its magic. Like Psycho Two is actually working on that level of self. If you really if you really think about it, it's working on that level that you described. It's self criticizing itself and its own audience. Uh, yeah, I think there is certainly a meta aspect to what it's operating on. And I think it, it can get away with that because you have someone like Richard Franklin that is such a fan and is such, you know, of not only the director, but just of his, of his entire filmography. Like he wants to pay homage and that, that feels like the right way to go with this movie. And I think, I think it works. Like it's, like I said, it's not an amazing film, but I think it's really successful at what it is. Yeah. It's a real, it's an amazing dichotomy I, I found with this fi- picture because uh, I get the sense that, like, you know, if you, like, put a gun to the filmmaker's heads and says, you have to make a sequel to Psycho, <laughs> this is about as good as you can take, like, and, and you know what it reminds me of, actually, is something, uh, is a film that Brad, Brad uh, pointed out to me, is, like, one of the greatest examples of cinematic rehabilitation of all time, which is Peter Bogdanovich's first film, Targets, and, like, Targets came from, like, some footage from a Roger Corman, uh, Boris Karloff picture, and... And it, he and like Bogdanovich took 15 minutes of it and used it to make this entire treatise about modern violence, you know. And and while I don't think Psycho 2 does it to that degree, it is actually pushing him to go in more directions and in more dimensions than the original than the original film is. And it, to the extent that now it's commenting on it. Yeah. And it's it's a movie that was set up to fail, like. The sequel to Psycho, Psycho, like that's like making Ben Hur two or yeah. Lawrence of Arabia two or you know whatever you want to come up with. Like it's there's no way anyone can go into this movie without a preconceived notion of it failing, and that's you know and that's interesting that they could make something and go like, well, okay, we're gonna just do what we're gonna do and we're gonna live in our own little universe and and try and add and you know craft onto. The actual story rather than, you know, make this parody or whatever you think we're going to make. It had the same fate as uh, uh, 2010, the sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey, which uh, also had an original that it, it, it could not compare to. So because there's no way any film could, they went in a completely different direction and, uh, and and created something entertaining that works on its own level, so long as you don't spend too much time comparing it to the first one. And I think uh, that and Psycho 2 kind of uh, follow a good creative pattern of a, uh, you know, a sequel to a classic done right. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like 2010 a lot. I think that's actually a really good comparison. Like, it, it's it's... It's never going to be 2001, so it's going to make you know its own little thing that adds to the universe. And I, I, I am quite a fan of 2010. Um, yeah. Well, I'm uh, for me, I think of uh, 2001 as the greatest film that's ever been made. So I don't know if this <laughs> two one two oh one oh movie you're talking about. Uh, as far as I know, that 
totally doesn't exist. Then there's some Roy Scheider movie with Helen Mirren and John Lithgow in it that I do agree. It's really good. And if it was called Roy Scheider in space, then I'd be like, I'd give it thumbs up. But but if you put those four numbers in front of it, I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> two, two, two quick notes I just want to make on, on Psycho 2 that both deal with miscasting. One of which is like, one of which is like a very unfortunate sense. I think the worst part of Psycho 2 to me is is um anthony perkins he is like oh my god he is mr bean with a meth habit on here and he's just like every sequence to me is just like an example of him like doing an improv crass wrong and how many different expressions he can put on his face in a given like two minute period and and like and he's so busy at it. Like, he can't sit in a chair <laughs> properly for most of the movie. And it, it's, it's, I find it just really, really distracting from the other actors who are, especially Meg Tilly, who are doing a really nice job of trying to, like... In fact, they deliver a lot more of the sympathy towards Norman Bates than I ever would by just looking at him, you know? But, of course, then you have another actor who uh, does his best to out-wacko Anthony Perkins with uh, Dennis Franz. No, I see Dennis. And, and his, uh, <laughs> his uh, scenery chewing and spitting out as the uh, disgusting uh, yeah. new in-owner who, who yeah. it seems to me like the, the actually probably explains why they'd want Norman Bates back. That's right. No, they, yeah, I think like, right, his presence seems to fit like, <laughs> seems to fit the kind of like uh, guy that you would have a substitute for a hotel that no one wants because of the whole Bates incident. But the other example that I have for miscasting is, and, you know, he's a good actor, but Robert Loja should not play a psychiatrist. Like, he looks like a guy. <laughs> he looks like a guy whose method involves throwing a couch at people. You know, <laughs> like I cannot believe he's he can ever talk anybody through something. You know, his his discussions will only lead to people being more agitated. All cop all the time. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so um, people's like identity and the and the the characters that they identify with is. Uh, Fr Richard Franklin made in his next movie, um, Cloak and Dagger, in 1984. Um, uh, like I, it involves like a, 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 a young, a young child played by E.T.'s Henry Thomas, uh, who, um, who basically goes and is, uh, like thinks, I, I believe that he thinks he sees a murder and he's being pursued, but he has no help from his dad, but help from a imaginary figure or, or is he, <laughs> um, well, uh, Henry Thomas's uh, father and uh, me and imaginary super spy is played by Dabney Coleman in one of his uh, few non-asshole roles. <laughs> <laughs> Dabney Coleman for <laughs> that was his specialty in the early '80s. If you needed a light comic asshole, he was your man. So in. Uh, in nine to five, and uh, <laughs> right, and you a, like a few other him. films. Oh, Tootsie is is another one. He yeah. just kind of had this uh, this market cornered, uh, but uh, but here he uh, 
again had the had the dual role as kind of the uh, uh, the father who can't really be bothered with all the the kid's issues and then uh, the kid develops a because uh, he, he he's obsessed with the computer games and this uh, game called uh, cloak and dagger which I have to think must have existed somewhere for people to actually play just like Tron did but I never saw it back in the day yeah they I think they may have made one af- made one after the fact like mm-hmm. like like they did an after effect version of war games but uh, but I don't know if they they didn't this is a little before any direct tie-ins right but the, so the what basically uh, Franklin is doing now is uh, Hitchcock for kids so he's yep. got, oh that's cool <laughs> that's cool he, he, he's got a lot of the uh, of uh, both Hitchcockian yeah, this and is... Spielbergian uh, elements here, with uh, with Henry Thomas, who gave probably just uh, one of the greatest little kid performances in E.T. Uh, luckily, uh, making this non-cloying, and what in if you had a lesser kid actor could have could have been a problem, uh, because. While we might look at it, you know, what, what, the movie is told completely from a kid's point of view, but, you know, we might watch it and be like, oh boy, this is Kids in Danger, the movie. The way it's set up, you know, and its target audience are the kids of that age, which is probably why uh, so many people have a great nostalgic uh, memory of this film. I'm just... Uh, Probably a couple years too old for that, but I could see if I had seen this when I was 11 or 12, mm-hmm. I would have loved the hell out of this. Yeah, I mean, it takes the like it takes this kind of the kids in peril things in, in, in a like it takes it seriously from the kids level without making it like like seem explo- ironically exploitative. Like it's mm-hmm. uh, like it's it's a it's treats it as like a a daring, exciting but uh, but fun adventure. Uh I'm not a huge fan of Cloak and Dagger. I know Jim loves this movie, and I don't really understand why, because I don't think it's very good. Oh, okay. uh, and I'm, I mean, I was, I was straight up in the eights. Like I was, I was eight when this came out. Like this is right in my wheelhouse, of, or should have been. And I just, I never liked it much then, and I don't really like it much now. Like I, it is, it is, you know, it's rear window for little kids, at, as similar as like. Disturbia is rear window for tweens, right? And it's it's nice. Like there's certainly things I like. I I think Dabney Coleman is is doing his all throughout this. I and I like. There's certainly you know I like the idea that this super spy is is also representative of his father and and this identity of you know this is the only way he can identify with his father. Um, and there's neat themes that are going in with it. But I there are just other movies at the time that I just found more enjoyable like i just i think do this kind of similar sort of kids in peril thing better like i mean this is right around the same time as goonies which i think is so much better than this movie it's not even funny and yeah it's a nice little kids movie i i don't understand why someone like jim thinks this movie's great My, yeah, we'll, we'll have to. Jim, please, uh, you know, go, <laughs> you know do in. some chiming in via <laughs> our various uh, uh, social media outlets. But my guess is that one's opinion of this film really would have a lot to do with one's age 
when they first saw it, how much they could identify with the the, the Henry Thomas character, right? Uh, and also getting made- into these adventures, basically getting to live out his dream of turning his video game obsession and his uh, spy versus spy obsession, right, uh, into a real life situation. Yeah, to me, like the other, yeah, the other movie that I, at right around the same time that I, that I identified way more with was Never Ending Story, mm-hmm. which is the same kind of concept, but in a fantasy setting. And that may just be more because I was bigger into D and D at the time and things like that, rather than you know spy versus spy or or you know James Bond. You know, my dad loved James Bond. I didn't really care until I was older, and I don't know if maybe that's part of it too. But there, like to me, there were a lot of these kinds of movies. You know, the 80s is was completely catered towards my generation. And I just think this was one of the more mediocre ones of the time. Like, I I would put this in the in the neighborhood of something like Condor Man or something like that. Oh, where it's right. Like, it's just not it's OK, but it's not any like I'm not going to have a whole lot of love for it. I didn't grab onto it then, you know. Flight of the Navigator, I think, is more fun than this. And I don't think Flight of the Navigator is a particularly good movie. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, that, that's that's just how it is for me. Like like I said, I was eight when this came out. I didn't really identify with it then. War Games I liked better, which I think operates very in a very similar kind of yeah. uh, universe. Or, like, I liked Weird Science better, which is geared towards older. But, like, to me, that's the same kind of goofy sort of is it really happening? Is it not really happening? Kind of style. And yeah. Yeah. yeah and but, like, uh, like this is something that like, uh, I, while looking into like the details of this movie, like it kind of illuminated something for me because I remember seeing cloak and dagger kind of after war games. And I was, I remember being a little, um, confused <laughs> by, by the different, like by the chicanery for it, because I was expecting like, I guess kind of the 1980s version of what like Rodriguez did with spy kids only, you know, not sucking. Um, but like that idea, like, Oh my gosh, they'd have all these cool gadgets and, and it'd be like nonstop frenetic action and so on. And instead it was kind of like, like there's a lot of dark, like a lot of like darkness, not in the tone, but like in how it's filmed and is like this kind of mysterious quality that I found kind of off putting. Well, the, the pacing was, was very slow, right. which, which is something yep. Franklin does often to really good effect because, you know, if you look at his, his thrillers, they're more deliberately paced than you'd expect. And now uh, with the movie geared towards kids, he keeps that pacing going, but in this particular movie, might maybe it's not working in its favor. Maybe a quicker, uh, uh, easy, easy on the feet kind of, uh, yeah, lighter pacing would have would have helped more. Yeah, I, to me, like a Looney Tunes kind of feel, where it's frantic and frenetic, and things are happening, and it's kind of barely in control works better for these kinds of kids movies. And this is, this is taking it seriously. Like you can certainly see the craft and, and I, it's there. Like, I don't think it's a badly made movie. I just don't find it super engaging. Like it's, I think it struggles to keep you interested. Hmm. It kind of like gets me, it kind of gets me like thinking of a, of an earlier podcast that, uh, that we did over here at the director's club. And it was, and I, Brad, I think you've got, I think you really got it with the idea that like his, 
like um the level of like dedication and kind of seriousness to even what he does with the what frankly does with the whimsical part in other words the level of care that he does mm-hmm. is good mm-hmm. for some genres and enhances some of the genres including ones you wouldn't expect but for the kids for this particular like environment the kids movie it didn't quite work out and it, it just gets me thinking about like you know, if you were some way that, like, Richard Franklin and Danny Boyle could, like, more evenly distribute their directing, like, <laughs> the directing methods, you know, because, like, Danny Boyle basically goes and enhances everything and makes everything hyperkinetic, even when it doesn't need to be, you know, where, uh, where and Franklin seems to go in the opposite direction. So maybe maybe a tiny bit of Boyleisms would have, uh, uh, maybe would have made things work a little differently. Though there is another aspect of the film, though, that uh, that could explain uh, some of its appeal, which is uh, the way it treats uh, father issues, right? And and mm-hmm. and missing fathers, and uh, you know, in in uh, Spielberg films, which 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 I feel like um, there was, in addition to Henry Thomas casting, just in in, in the way the the look of it in the film is developed reminded me uh, of the kind of thing that uh, Steven Spielberg was doing. Not, not to the effect that Steven Spielberg got, but just kind of, just kind of in the style, the idea that you're looking at, uh, at the adult world through kids eyes and you're not, but you're not going to talk down. You're not going to talk down to the kids mm-hmm. the way you're doing it. And so, you know, in E.T., for instance, you have a father who's simply not there, but here you also have a father who may be there physically, but is not connecting. And mm-hmm. so, you know, part of the arc of this story is how can, you know, how, how can this kid's uh, imaginary life lead to some kind of uh, connection with his actual father? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, and and it makes me wonder, Brad, if there's any any films that come to mind that come like kind of similar to that. I know it does. I know for for like all like Cloak and Dagger's attempts to be entertaining may or may not work, but I know it explores that angle definitely better than say Finding Nemo does. Oh, I'll disagree with that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> like Finding Nemo to me is kind of Finding Nemo has a lot of good qualities, but the fact that it, it looks like the director's attempt at winning a custody battle is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's like there's that scene, there's scenes near the end where like the the uh, Nemo is going, "That's my dad, that's my dad." Can you see how great my dad is? And like, like Cloak and Dagger's ending does that in such a much better fa- uh, and less cloying fashion to me. You know, but uh, but and but I wonder if like other films, there are other films that try for that. Like, and yes, Spielberg does do that missing father thing quite a quite a bit. That's a huge concern of his. Right, right. Uh, yeah, what the parental uh you know uh, parent issues definitely mm-hmm. uh exist in a lot of uh kids movies in the 80s uh which of course was the time in which uh working mothers and par- and latchkey children became part of the the lexicon so you do have uh a connection to what was actually going on at the time. Yeah. Wow. So you know that's yeah. I, I think that is kind of a cool way a cool way to look at it. I mean, ultimately for the film for me was a little bit. Um, it, it was a little bit off putting. I don't know if it was going to work as like a. It was ever going to work as a good match, but the way it worked was kind of eh, 
kind of middling to me. Yeah, I'll need to confer with a 12-year-old to really <laughs> figure this out, I think. Well, when they will reboot it. You know they, you know, you know they will. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, good, and now speaking of like using a kind of uh, your own particular tone and pacing for another unique caretaker, uh, a caretaker position is his upcoming movie uh, like in 1986 called Link. Link is about a uh, young woman um, uh, whose name is Jane <laughs> Chase, uh, played played by a very young Elizabeth Shue, who is off in uh, who gets a very um, a unique job um, uh, at a at a cottage at, at, at an um, at a cottage run by um, run by a professor, Doctor Stephen Phillip, played by Terrence Stamp, who is running some very unusual experiments on on some uh, on some uh, chimpanzees, and um, and uh, in, which is trying to increase their intelligence and te- and teaching them to do various human related uh, human related activities, and. Um, and things take a kind of a a, a, a um, unique turn, <laughs> uh, but even even unique than what you may think. Like it sort of sounds like an animal's uh, uh, terrorizing people, but it goes into like four or five other different directions. <laughs> um, uh, beside that, I do want to like give a little preface to our discussion, and that I I hope we can make a record for talking about this movie without putting in an ape pun. Uh, any 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 play on words on apes or monkeys? We will try to keep that to zero. Let's 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 give uh, that a shot. <laughs> difficult because uh, you know, just like we we were when we were talking about Eskimo Nell, we were like, there's only so much you can do with this exploitation film. Right? There might be only so much you could do with a monkey movie, <laughs> and. You know, in the end, that that's really what this is. It's it's uh, trained uh, chimpanzees and an orangutan uh, who is uh, dyed black to make it appear to be a <laughs> that's, larger you're, chimpanzee. You're, you're leading. You're leading with the movie's uh, worst feature there, Brad. Because the- well, I think it's it really sums up the issue with the film is that it has no idea what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's right. I am. I have to admit, I was actually kind of. Um, I was kept a little awestruck in it because because his Franklin's director style just kept my like astonishment at just this kind of low simmer. <laughs> so like, okay, okay, okay. Because <laughs> like, kept he kept with every new development of having like um, the. Um, um, the chimp characters behave in a and use a particular like spelling board to tell someone to say cook a telephone, <laughs> or have a one of them really go out and um, uh, uh, dedicate himself to smoking cigars, <laughs> to using one to using one of the um, uh, apes as like as a reaction shot for stuff that humans are doing. Right. I was just like, 
I don't know what you're doing with this movie, but I guess I'll see what you're doing in the next ten minutes. Th- this is a problem <laughs> because it's it's trying to be a suspense film. I don't know uh, if it's it, doing it, trying to do that. I really don't. Well, oh, uh, oh it is. It's trying ape, really ape, hard. The, the <laughs> apes do uh, link our title ape who we're introduced to when uh, he opens the door to welcome Elizabeth Shue into uh, her professor's home, is uh, acting as the butler and wearing a a (laughs) butler outfit, yet is shot in a shadow in a way that is, uh, I think we're supposed to feel uh, suspense from, yet then the next thing you've got is the orangutan in the butler suit, you know, and, and again, we have chips and orangutans behaving as they do in other monkey movies from every which way, but lose to going ape to all these wonderful classics of, uh, mm-hmm. of just they're, you know, they're vaguely amusing because they're monkeys and, you know, like, just like we enjoy them at the zoo, but now you want me to be scared of them. And I realize that in real life, these are dangerous animals, and they make the point of how strong they are. And you know what? If I was actually in a room with uh, with a large chimp or an orangutan, you know, I might uh, think twice. But on film, they're basically a comic presence. So when you ask us to be afraid of them, you're asking a lot. It's really interesting on that, like, uh, on that kind of on a kind of meta level for these guys because because right now now that there has been a couple of people who have been mauled in different zoo accidents who have appeared on talk shows to show their horribly mangled state now people are a lot more aware of of how dangerous chimpanzees can be so watching so the effect of watching the movie now might be actually way more suspenseful than when the movie came out because when the movie came out like chimps were thought of these beloved like Beloved, like comical figures who are very playful, and you can, you can, you know, and and they don't pose any threat to anybody. And so, when I'm watching, when I was watching uh, Link recently here, and and hearing um, Terrence Stamp talk about, no, the monkey will easily rip your face off and then go for your testicles, and I'm just like, what? You're just, I, I actually thought you're you're going too far, <laughs> in, in ter- like at least in the context of that movie. But of course, that is actually how chimps really can behave now. So it actually comes across now. Now, when I look at the movie, it's a lot more interesting because, like, it's akin to a movie that came out called Roar, where it's basically about Tippy <laughs> Hedren having to um, take care of a wildlife refuge and. And her and her actual family is surrounded by giant cats who can clearly slaughter them at any moment, and yet they're trying to have a performance. Meanwhile, like Elizabeth Shue is trying to take care of like a small of a chip, and the chip is g- clearly grabbing her and his hand and and, and is and and at, that chip is certainly possible of hurling her around into the side of a wall, but she's like has to behave like, oh, that's a nice little chimp, you know? So there's a little extra friction that was not there when that movie came out. There's also an unfortunate um, 76 King Kong vibe a little bit, whereas Mm. uh, uh, Elizabeth Shue is taking a bath and is is, is naked at one point. And this this seems seems to quite excite uh, (laughs) Link, the the, the, the orangutan chimp, whatever. And... uh, 
Right. Again, that that's right. That, ironically, <laughs> a questionable decision. I, ironically, that's a scene that would have fit perfectly in the first thirty minutes of the Eskimo Nell movie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but then right. So you but I think at that moment you're meant to like think of 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 Link as a a chuckle worthy figure. Oh, look at the Randy, uh, look at the Randy ape. But he did something just horrible just like five minutes before. <laughs> I don't know. I think the movie wants us to be scared of Link. Uh, yeah, I okay. I fully agree with that. Like to me, this is like the the movie is set in a house that is suspiciously like the Bates house. Yes, it is. Uh, it is. I mean, to me, it's very much using Link as this you know broken, abused character that's bound to snap, which is suspiciously like Norman Bates. Uh, <laughs> it has this twitching. weird. Yeah, it has this weird sexual vibe sexual predator vibe as well in that bass scene which makes me is one of the most uncomfortable scenes i've ever watched Mm. in any movie like it's bordering on gross (laughs) and and i don't think that's the intent of that scene like i don't think that was their intent of that Mm -hmm. scene but that's where it that's where it ends up being Mm -hmm. and you just have this weird like this movie is aping shots from psycho left Uh, clearly sorry (laughs) Darn it. Uh, um, right. Anyways, yes, it was aping shots of Psycho, yep. Uh, le- yeah, just left and right. And I, I mean, this is a movie that I don't think is any good. Um, <laughs> I do find it pretty, f- I do find it pretty funny at, at a lot of times. And I think like the last 15, 20 minutes is kind of fun, but I think it's, I think it's kind of a failure. Like this is in the so bad, it's kind of good range for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm where a- it's. Yeah, I'm. I think Where of it it's as, just sorry, messy. Yes. Yeah. No, I just think I just think it's messy, and it's like it's trying to fit all these round pegs in diamond-shaped holes, and it's failing horribly. Mm-hmm. And you know, Terrence Stamp should be chewing it up and being amazing, and he's kind of you know the focus is on Elizabeth Shue and this orangutan, and Elizabeth Shue can't carry a scene. And it's it just seems like it's it's making so many bad decisions at so many different times that it's never able to do what it's aiming to do, and it just it just doesn't work. <laughs> See, I can't really figure out a way f- that this movie could work. It it seems like at the conception level, it was probably already doomed. I I, I can't think of a... Because uh, I think well, I, Franklin actually... I, honestly, yeah. you need to make it a gore flick. Like, you need to have mm. Link rip some dude's arms off and start, like, beating people with it. Like, I think the only way you can make Link sinister enough is to really just go over the top and make it something like that. Like, where... where Or, you know, make it Assault on Precinct 13 with an mm-hmm. ape that's... They're trapped in a room and this ape is tearing everything up. You know, you know, that's what Cujo is like. It can work. You just got to figure out a way to make, you know, introducing him in a butler outfit right off the bat. You're like, oh, you're you're screwed. Like you've you've turned this into any which way but loose. Like it's like this is a failure. So and it's just it, it you can't recover from that when you when you make him a comedy bit and you're supposed to make him this horrible monster later like it. He's not an actor. He can't 
do that range. Mm-hmm. Like it, he's just not capable of it. It's it's just a bad decision. Yeah, and, and it's it's too bad. Yeah. That, that's how one I feel about things, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, one of the things that made this just a little more bearable uh, for me was the presence of Terrence Stamp, who. Uh, doesn't have much to do, but he's such a good actor. I love that warlock. <laughs> such a, I love that warlock hair he has. You know? Well, yes, he's got. It's clearly the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> he's got the big eighties hair that uh, can only be um, outdone by Albert Finney's hair in Wolfen. Oh well, maybe but, maybe Labyrinth's uh, hair by Bowie. But that was a wig. I think <laughs> yeah. this was his actual hair. Uh, but but, but you, you know he's got he's got enough gravitas that when he's actually explaining the plot, I can at least enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I am. Um, like I actually got a really distinct, impre- different impression than you guys did, and I um, because I literally thought it was it is like like some kind of weird comedy of manners some sort of statement on like uh, on what does it mean to civilize you know what does it mean to civilize it it kind of reminds me of another of another Pixar joint where like uh uh, the movie um, Up, where like the guy trains the dogs, and like they train the dog to deliver like these the these drinks to people, and the dog's splashing it all over the place because it's a dog. It's not supposed to do these things like give drinks and fly planes. So of course the monkeys are gonna behave in this weird way because they're not supposed to wear butler outfits and smoke cigars. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of the reason I have that impression is because um, uh, they had this the score. This especially it starts off. Like I was like like you guys were thinking the movie plot when you were watching it. I was thinking the movie was gonna be like that. I thought it was gonna be a little like the um, like the um, uh, Romero film. Uh, what was it called Monk? Was Monkey, it Monkey Shines? Shines? Yeah. yeah, I was thinking it was yeah. gonna be like that kind of a movie. But then I hear that score and they show these pictures, these murals of 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 monkeys, and the score is like this bouncy, bouncy, chirpy thing that sounds like uh, somebody took a symphony. Uh, to the organ grinder music that you do with the little monkey that gives his cap. But it's a little jungly. Yeah. Jerry Goldsmith, I believe. That's right. It's by Jerry Goldsmith, which is, which by the way is a super cool detail is that he, he did much better scoring his later monkey movie when he did the score for Congo. (laughs) (laughs) So that, that guy has a niche (laughs) and, and, but I took that score to heart in the sense that like, I thought that like Franklin was trying to make a go- uh, kind of a goofy kind of like, and I think the fact that it was a, a, a like a, a British manor at the at the at the on the seashore, and it's such a kind of like, you know, it's such a kind of uh, the scope of many like of a of a Agatha Christie kind of mystery that I thought like it's kind of like how the Big Lebowski was say if the Big Lebowski was an idea of like what if a bunch of stoners solve a noir mystery linked to me it was like hey what if a bunch of monkeys try to have a con- <laughs> try to like have a drawing room <laughs> a drawing room drama thing and and by the way there was one part at the at the end that I found flat out hilarious which is spoiler alert is that Link appears to meet his demise but he meets his demise in almost the exact same way James Cagney did in White Heat he's like <laughs> he's on on top of a kind of a big fiery area and he's like waving his arms like it's top of the world ma and <laughs> and then he lights a, a final cigar <laughs> and i'm just like okay i don't know what you're trying to do here but it's kind of like i'm kind of impressed by how deranged and off-putting it i guess i guess maybe it's like i guess it's the most david lynchian turn that i saw from franklin's work <laughs> so far you know so that's that was that's kind of like my impression on it and like and so 
I, maybe I'm being generous, but something that weird cannot be a total failure for me. <laughs> but but it's not. But let me be clear. I'm not. I would not recommend this movie to anyone <laughs> without giving them a lot of preparation. It's like don't expect anything. Yeah, I'm, if yeah, when I tell people to watch Richard Franklin, I leave this one out. Like this is this is this needs to be one of the last ones you see because it's it would give you such a bad idea of what kind of a filmmaker he is. And it's, it's just so messy. And so it, it, yeah, it just, it feels like it lacks direction in what it wants to be. And that's something that is so against what kind of filmmaker he is and makes, makes the, if, if, if it was any other director that attached to it, that made this movie, I'd probably have more fun with it. Cause it's so weird and goofy and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, that it comes from Franklin just makes it really disappointing. Ah, okay, so right, so because you know he could do put things together and have the yeah, tones work I mean, so much better. Yeah, I mean, five years earlier he's making road games and like rocking the shit out of it. Like it's like I know what this guy can make and how good of a filmmaker he is. To see something like this that's such a mess is just like ugh. I, I mean, and it like after this he has another movie that's a mess and. Then he's done with Hollywood, and I can kind of get it. Like it, it makes me feel like, well, maybe he isn't having the control there that he did in Australia, and that could be a big reason why. Like I know he had a lot of complaints about working in Hollywood, and it's why he went back to making Australian films. Right. Like I think he just had more control and was able to do what he wanted to do. I mean, maybe he didn't necessarily want to make a monkey movie. Oh, you think yeah. the monkey movie was forced upon him? Well, as a commercial, as a, as you know, um, it, it, it was a, a trend. It was a trend at the time. It, it for, was a trend, yeah. but it, it, it's such an awkward fit for him. And now I, I, I'm not sure how big a hit Cloak and Dagger actually was. Mm-hmm. I think it's become more of a cult film. Yeah. So you know, he might it, it, just in order to keep working in Hollywood. Maybe there was a paycheck involved, but. Uh, yeah, it, it it seemed like uh, Link uh, was a bit of the beginning of the end for uh, Mr. Franklin. Mm, I I don't I that's that's interesting. I mean, I kind of like I guess I would kind of like beg to differ because I actually am a bit of a, a fan of um of his of his up upcom- of the movie he makes next, like F- uh, FX two in uh, in nineteen ninety one. It's uh, obviously a sequel to um, uh, to uh, uh, FX uh, that came out a couple years earlier, feature which does an interesting twist on the kind of thriller, which is um, and maybe even a meta twist you could say, where uh, at least in the original movie, because the main character in FX, uh, uh, Raleigh, uh, played by uh, played by uh, Brian Brown, is a special effects expert in a is a movie studio, so he uses his special effects techniques to to uh, dispatch people. As he like gets involved in these gets involved in these mysteries, and he's um, uh, and he w- his rival in the original FX, uh, uh, Leo, played by Brian Dennehy, um, they're now like teamed up because they're now are are these kind of like uh, like th- thieving like con kind of miscreants who get involved in like a whole scheme involving these incredibly rare incredibly rare like Vatican coins, and um, and and the movie goes and. 
and definitely gets in. Uh, I think looking at it now, especially compared with our conversation right now, I definitely see Franklin's Franklin's ability of like melding things has been become a little frayed because FX was kind of a very consistent piece, and FX two not quite so. Right, it, it's kind of two two different films, uh, neither fish nor fowl situation where you have one film is a very deliberate, slow, and detailed uh, procedural. Mm-hmm. As we get into uh, the uh, police corruption, the details of the case, bringing in the Vatican coins, there's a lot of plot going on. And, and to me, these uh, plot sequences were pretty dull. On the other hand, there is uh, uh, an invention that uh, Brian Brown's character uh, has come up with, which is this uh, yeah. robotic clown that uh, <laughs> yep. when he puts on a suit, uh, and, and the clown is not the suit, the clown is, is its own robot, but he puts on a suit so that whatever move he makes, the clown mimics, yep. which leads to some uh, pretty... <laughs> Uh, both ridiculous, fun, and insane scenes of uh, action slapstick. And and so this clown is involved in a number of, of sequences in this film. And, and, and it's strange, the film seems to come to life whenever this clown is involved, this robot clown, and then goes back to being kind of a slog when it's back to the plot. <laughs> you know, uh, this is just a crazy tangent, but I wanted to bring up how... Uh, you you know you've seen those kind of like Leonardo da Vinci like drawings of like the the ape becoming a human being you know coming from a fish becoming an ape becoming a human being like I kind of see this kind of descent in his subject matter as it's as once once were cowboys like later become like uh, 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 people with mental problems then become children and now then apes and now robot clowns <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of you can kind of plot it you know <laughs> um. Yeah, it's right. You're, I, I, I think I agree in that. Like, it's kind of a. Uh, there's three things. There's three different things that are at work at, that are kind of at war in this movie with me. Like, like the uh, the. I really get a lot of fun out of um, Brian Brown and Dennehy's pairing. I think those are really two kind of complementary personalities, and I kind of enjoy them. Like going on like mi- mystery mystery adventures, but those mystery adventures are kind of. Not really based upon like you know Da Vinci Code like divining of secret plots and and like you know thorough kind in thorough explanations of procedural things right they're more like oh my god we're in trouble what can we do with our like cop and and special effect knowledge to get us out of it right but the clown stuff and there's a particular stuff I uh, seen I also enjoy where he defeats an assassin with some baked beans. <laughs> that I like, okay, that's not really working in a special effects thing either. That's just some straight-up goofy stuff. But it's, so it's like a to- yet another tone to this particular kind of odd symphony, you know? Right. And, and you mentioned Dennehy, and kind of just like uh, Terrence Stamp couldn't help but make his scenes in Link more watchable. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian Dennehy is such a good actor. He doesn't have that much to do. But the movie is always just a little better when he's on the screen. Oh yeah, I, I think I mean I think they make I think they like make make like a really a really great team because he's like he's such a gruff 
you know, he's such a gruff presence who like who doesn't really who who like does respect like Brian Brown's rally on some level, but on other levels like thinks he's just like a Hollywood a Hollywood flake, you know. <laughs> and Brian Brown and Brian Brown just thinks of thinks of Leo as a meathead, and so I kind of I I like their their dichotomy on it. Like uh, uh, like Matt's, what's your impression? Do you have a chance to take a look at FX two recently? Um, I have not watched FX two recently. I I like the movie. I like FX a lot. I think FX is kind of an underrated film. Um, FX two, I, I I do agree. Like I think it's it's kind of two different films. I, it also has it, to me. It is uh, unlike Psycho two, which I think is a really good representation of what a sequel should be. I think FX two is a representation of what a sequel should not be, which is almost the same movie all over again, just with more explosions and clowns. <laughs> um, like they recreate essentially doing the you know we're going to do this special effect little drop you know money drop kind of thing which is almost the exact same thing as the mob guy in the first one you know that goes wrong and blows up in their face and now it everything is what happens uh i i get a real big feeling when i watch fx2 that like it's it's taking the wrong things from the lethal weapon series oh that's um, an interesting getting and getting goof like it's it's getting goofier and more out of control and um, you know, I, I think Lethal Weapon's a great movie and I, I while I love Lethal Weapon 2, it's totally ridiculous. <laughs> and I think that's kind of like the second half of FX2 is absolutely ridiculous and gets so out of whack of what to me an FX film is, which is sort of this noirish sort of film, like modern noir with this kind of Hollywood special effect kind of tweak to it. Um, and, and it's also about, you know, it's Brian Dennehy and Brian Brown and how they play off of one another. Mm -hmm. It's the, you know, the fish out of water kind of idea. Um, and I just think like this just becomes a super common, you know, eighties, late eighties and most of the nineties where it's the buddy cop film with bigger and more explosions as the movie goes. And, and that's just kind of disappointing. Like I, I can see why this would be a movie that have ultimately kind of turned him off on Hollywood that he, I think he was trying to make a smaller picture and they wanted to make, you know, the, whoever it was, the producers or the studio wanted a bigger, louder, you know, film. And that's gotta be really frustrating. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. You do get the sense of like that there might've been too many cooks, but definitely like, cause there's definitely like to me, at least three tones of, um, three tones of what the movie could have could have been and and I, I like the point you made about how like yeah after lethal weapon they're just like execs were like where's the banter add more banter yep. <laughs> like we need we, we need more we, uh, like no wait this and the director could argue or the writer argues no no the guy's in real trouble no no have him do a sarcastic quip this is the time a sarcastic quip every 10 minutes um i i i yeah i mean ultimately i still really enjoy their the 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 dual those those dual characters because dennehy is a great loudmouth bull in the china shop guy and whereas like brian brown's a kind of like very sprightly um uh sprightly like con man with like he does i think he does a twinkle with his eye really well and i i don't know if his other films but but man he deserves such more of a career than being known as the dude from cocktail who helps out tom cruise you know what i'm saying because <laughs> i think i think he was put on a really winning personality in both fx and fx2 you know and he could have stand to do more he could have stood to do do more work you know? yeah i i like brian brown i find him really fun i think he's a he's an 
he he has a very laid back, easygoing personality in his films that go like you can play a lot of different roles off of it. I I don't know enough about him on whether or not like maybe he's a douchebag on set. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I don't. <laughs> I, I, I mean. Uh, and I, I also kind of wonder, like, if if the studio execs, like, the reason why Franklin gets attached to this is like, oh, our lead is Australian. Here's an Australian director. Like, oh, I, that, interesting. That feels very much like you know they'll have their little Aussie things to right. get it <laughs> like, right. And, and who and who knows? Like, I don't I don't really know enough about the backstory outside of the fact like Franklin quit Hollywood after right. this film, right? And so clearly so enough went on that he went. You know what? This is. This is I'm done with this. I don't want to deal with right. it. Right. I mean, we are talking about a studio system that, in an infamous story, when they, after John Woo had made their third American movie, there actually were complaints that his style was, quote, too Chinese. Dude. <laughs> dude. You know, so, like, I don't know. Maybe maybe in a bit of an Australian equivalent happened here. But ultimately, I would – ultimately, I, unlike Link, which I would just – not recommend to anyone without a big question mark and, and laying some groundwork. In this movie, it's kind of I think it's so it's successful enough in the in a in a kind of thriller adventure realm that does enough sprinkling of differentness of, of difference rather that I, I would I would kind of recommend it. Though I would not say it's a great movie by any means. And like Brad- no, it's, yeah, to me it is. It's a fun, brainless kind of action film, which it, it like I have fun. Like mm-hmm. these are characters I like. I would I would watch an FX three like I would totally do yeah it. like I don't have a I would have been happy if this became a franchise right. but as long as they uh, but, as long as they keep Joe Pesci and Chris Rock away from it like then <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly like and and that's I, I like FX too but I it's more of I wish this went more in the direction of what FX set itself out to right do, which is which is a smaller more character driven film instead of you know explosions everywhere and that's yeah. that's just. That's just too bad. Other than that, though, like I would, I totally watch FX every couple of years. Yeah, and it's a and it's a shame then that like that he was that Franklin was then driven back to Australia to make these films, and 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 especially bad for in my case in that like I was not able to take a look at his two films he made after that soon after um, Ho- um Hotel Sorrento in 1995 and um, Brilliant Lies in uh, 1996. Um, uh, Brad or Matt, did you have you had a chance to see uh, either one of those two films? I have not yeah. seen either. Like yeah. they are, they are very hard to find. <laughs> and uh, I've only recently saw his last film, which is Visitors. Like even that was kind of hard to track down. Right, I was not a. I actually was not able to track that down. But Brad was successful I, in I finding it. I did see visitors. It is uh, the only uh, uh, post uh, FX two uh, Franklin film I was <laughs> able to uh, to get a hold of. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, un- unfortunately, it didn't give me a sense of a great loss. Oh, really? <laughs> in, in that, it, I, I I do think it is. Um, while maybe not technically as bad as Eskimo Nell, it it, it, wow. it it is much. I found it much more of a, a boring because it, it it's actually uh, trying to tell a ghost story, 
and, and I I don't think it works. So a little background yeah. on the film. Uh, it is about a, a young woman who's um, who who's a uh, sailor, and her uh, mission is to sail around the world from from Australia back to Australia. Her uh, boyfriend is is uh, the only person. Really, and she, who is her support, and he, uh, oh, and her, her, her father, who has uh, fallen ill, um, and uh, she, the rule is, uh, in order to make this uh, record, you, she cannot uh, have anyone on board, she cannot uh, leave the boat, but she, she cannot use the motor, although the boat does have a motor, mm-hmm. uh, so it has to be all sailing. Uh, but she can talk on the radio a lot. So we have one, we have kind of a plot where her personal issues with her uh, dying father and who sh- uh, and and her mother who uh, has already died uh, leads to some fraught drama either in her head, or as a result of uh, ghostly visitations onto the ship. Well, I have to be honest. That kind of sounds fascinating. You would think, <laughs> but I do. but I, I I'll, and, and Matt, Matt, I'll be curious here your your reaction in, in my um, mind. I liked none of it. this worked at all. <laughs> oh, you liked it though? No, I, I did yeah. like it. I think I think it runs out of steam pretty badly mm-hmm. though. Like I think. It, the pacing of it is not good. Like I find it really interesting as a movie that's really about like someone struggling to maintain their sanity. Um, I think probably the biggest problem is I don't think Rada Mitcha is a pr- particularly strong actress, and this movie is really reliant on her carrying the film. Um, she works better. Like she's I've certainly liked her in other movies, but this is she's in ninety five percent of the movie and alone through most um, of it. Yeah, and and it's like, and that's just. I just don't think she is capable of shouldering that much of a film, or, or certainly of a film that requires such a big range from from the lead. Like she has to be. There are times where she's straight out, absolutely losing her mind. There's other times where she's goofing around, which you can't really tell if she's lost her mind or not. Like that that whole makeup video thing doesn't work very well at all. Um but overall, like I, I think, and I think the movie does is is more successful when you aren't really sure what's going on, whether it is like tricks of her mind or it is actual people getting on the ship. And when it finally, when you finally figure out what it is, uh, I think is when it really starts to lose steam because you're halfway in and you're like, oh my god, I've got forty minutes to go, and this isn't compelling enough to really drive it through to the end. What, um, one of my problems with it is I, th- I think I figured it out pretty early, and mm-hmm. I think the uh, the film, which should have had more of a balance uh, between the idea of whether there are ghosts or, or it's all in her head, uh, sh- shows its hand oh. too quickly. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um. And, the, and yeah, and it's just you know I I mean I, I overall I liked it I think it's it's stylized it does some fun stuff with it I just th- I mean in terms of his of of his filmography it's way, it's t- way towards the bottom like I I think it's a better movie than Link 
but I think I had more fun with Link than I do with this. Like I don't, I don't get the fun in this movie that are in a lot of his films. He tends to weave in humor mm-hmm. and kind of cheeky banter and things like that. And this is this is kind of deadly serious throughout. Mm. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if if that's really where he should be. I don't know if he's trying to make his serious. You know, I, I, to me, the movie this is trying the most to be is The Shining, right? Um, and it's just, it's not <laughs> like you know, that's not. It doesn't stand a chance. Like Rada Mitchell is not Jack Nicholson. Like right. it's just, and that cat is not, you know, anyone else in in The Shining. Oh, oh you just reminded um, me that the cat talks. That drove yeah. me crazy too. I had no problem with that, <laughs> it, it, mainly because I couldn't place the cat's accent. Like it was, I. I Yeah, I haven't seen the movie, but I find it just kind of interesting that you guys bring up that it's like The Shining, but in on on like in a vehicle. So it's like a Mm -hmm. a a setting that's usually set in a very isolated house becomes a a trans, which is kind of harkens back to how Road Games takes another movie based off an enclosed environment and makes it into a vehicular kind of thing. But I yeah, I think the setup of it is brilliant. Like this is this is a woman traveling around the world over the course of it's supposed to be like 170 days. She's hit a patch, like, I think it's, they say, six months in, where there's no wind, so her boat is essentially dead at sea, and she's just sitting there and can't do anything, and cabin fever's setting in, and she's kind of going crazy, but there's also, you know, maybe there's this pirate tanker ship in the area, and there's the occasional people she can reach over uh, the radio, and I think the setup is great. I just, it, it just doesn't carry through and like the fr- the first half of the movie i liked it because i'm like this is interesting i i like what they're trying to do and then it just kind of falls apart right mm-hmm. um, for me it didn't do the basic thing it needed to do which was uh act as a suspense movie is mm. to keep me yeah. on the edge of edge of my seat like patrick did and you know patrick had as we discussed before had a plot that wouldn't necessarily make you think you'd be on the edge of your seat but damn, damned if he did didn't pull it off just through sheer style, mm-hmm. and yep. so I'm watching visitors and thinking, "Wow, this needs a director like Richard Franklin of, <laughs> of those days." Yeah, you yeah. know, it, it's yeah, it's actually kind of like a uh, it's uh, interesting you bring that up because it ties into a, a certain collaboration we had brought up earlier because it turns out this movie was also written by uh, Everett DeRoche, and so. It comes to mind for me uh, like two things. First off, is that that this movie is something where it has the the qualities that DeRoche brings to Patrick. That level of thoughtfulness, that level of a really amazing pre- presence. The idea of taking a premise that you think from one kind of setting and moving it to a completely different setting, and yet somehow having it still work. So those qualities seem to still be evident, but that extra step that made it makes Road Games remarkable. The direction. It seems like kind of the direction ended up like like being the thing that was like kind of let down. And then the second thing that comes across is that, damn, I have to follow this Everett DeRoche guy. Mm-hmm. He is like, <laughs> like e- even in a film that like you don't necessarily like, you got to mark like that, that the setup for it was really interesting. And someone who can recontextualize and show things in this new way is a writer to like, oh, you know, the, pre- pursue. The, the premise had promise. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, the execution, uh, at mm. least for me, not so much. Okay. Yeah, and I, I would say, like, it falls a ba- back on a lot of, like, really 
lazy horror tropes. Like, there's lots of jump scares, which is something that he doesn't do. Like, it's not really prevalent in anything else he does. Like, there's a lot of, like, especially the second half is loaded with them. There's some bad special effects, Mm -hmm. like CGI effects, which didn't help. Um, And, like, it's just kind of, like, it just runs out of what, whatever setup it had, it runs out of too quickly. I I have to ask, though. Is there a cat scare talking or not? <laughs> I don't remember one. No, I, I, no because That's in his favor. I, the, the, <laughs> the cat is who uh, is her confidant. <laughs> okay, and, yeah, uh, and, and and the voice used for the cat is not not anything you'd expect. It's kind of like if anyone has seen uh, a boy and his dog. Uh, oh, really? The okay. post-apocalyptic John, Don Johnson movie from the 70s <laughs> and uh, who talks to his dog. It was kind of that kind of uh, uh, yeah, cat it's, talk. It's kind of regal and pompous, yeah. sort of. And like like I said, it was hard to place the accent. Like I think it might have been like South African. Like It was this weird kind of not really British, but it, it was a, it was a weird choice. I liked it. But it was just, I didn't really know, like, it was, yeah, it was strange. And it didn't, like, they don't really explain it well right off the bat before you got to, oh, it's the cat well, talking the to the other it. thing is the radio. <laughs> the fact that she can use the radio, and it mm-hmm. mostly works. So she's able to talk to people. So the idea that she is so isolated to the point where she has to talk to her cat more concerningly that the cat answers back mm. it isn't to be isn't really earned because she does have this outlet to civilization she's not quite as isolated as what happens would would make us uh, think huh yeah i i think it would work better like they show you like her leave and then suddenly it's 6 months later and she's kind of crazy like there's no build to it there's like suddenly you're just dumped in here and you only know that it's that far in because they say you've, you've been out at sea for six months. Um, and that's kind of clunky, which is something that is really uncommon for, for a Franklin or a DeRoche film. Like it's, it's, it's clunky exposition and a, and a clunky way of, of delivering it. And so that's what makes it hard to understand that. Yeah. If you're the only person on a boat for six months, I bet you are a little punchy. Like I, that makes sense to me. But 20 seconds ago, she was leaving port. Like, I don't know what's what's going on. Right. It, it doesn't quite make that castaway uh, uh, yeah. transition that Tom Hanks was able to do. Um, so yeah, there's no there's no yeah, there's no bridge to where she is, you know, when the boat finally loses, you know, stops moving like you're just suddenly there and you're you're supposed to go with what they say. And that's that's usually, you know, that's just to me, that's bad storytelling mm. well it's like well it's it's too, really too bad that like this is going to be that was going to be like franklin's final like a uh, full full release but ultimately like uh i've i think i've got like a, a heck of a lot of a benefit of just following this guy and especially his collaborations with roche like and and i really like how just by virtue of following this director he kind of works as like a gateway towards opening up towards a whole kind of genre or collection of films that I was never even like aware of.
I kind of would like to run a question by by each of you guys as to like if if people would like Richard Franklin or like this like the kind of Australian type of film that he was doing, like what would be like a film or a director that they would recommend um, uh, to just follow up on when, after they've taken a look at some of uh, Franklin's uh, um, uh, works? Like uh, Matt, would do you have any ideas of that, of a kind of film or director like that? Yeah, I've got a I got a couple films. Like one one for me that is is an exploitation film that I like quite a lot, which is another kind of absurd horror film that just works out of sheer force of will from the directing uh, is Razorback, uh, which was directed by Russell Mulcahy, who's probably best known for uh, directing The Highlander. And then he also directed pretty much every single Duran Duran music video. Ah. Uh, and this and this is essentially uh, a Pigzilla film in which it's Jaws uh, <laughs> in the form of a giant you know, eight foot long. You know, I think he's even bigger than that. I think he's like 15 feet and like six feet tall Razorback that's roaming the Australian countryside and eating people. Uh, it is pure style. Like it is absolutely absurd. Like it is shot like it's an eighties music video. Uh, the, the plot in it is, is way for thin, um, but it is also another Everett DeRoche uh, screenplay. Um, and it's just super fun. Like it's it. You can tell they had the same problems with the pig that they did in Jaws, and they. It's all about hiding the pig, <laughs> so you can't really see him because um, he was probably just this big thing on wheels that they were moving around. <laughs> uh, but it like, I you know Mulcahy shoots the shit out of this movie. It is it is one of the most stylized films I have ever seen, and it's absolutely a blast uh, to watch. And if you know if you go into it knowing like this is a cheeky kind of horror film and just sit back and enjoy. It's, it's pretty fun Uh, for a more modern kind of take, which I think is probably similar to the style of filmmaking that, that um, Richard Franklin likes to do. I would say is the proposition from John Hillcoat, which is a very slow, slow burn uh, Neo Western. That's kind, you know, dipping into this kind of horror and thriller, but, you know, also setting it in the Australian outback. Um, and just another one that is absolutely elevating past whatever, you know, genre setting it's in through direction and through acting and storytelling. And it's, it's a masterpiece. Um, and it's, it's an example of more like modern exploitation filmmaking. Oh my God. Like I, I just have to jump in and say, I adore the proposition. I, if, yeah. if anyone can make a, a Cormac McCarthy version of like, um, uh, of his, a uh, blood Meridian film, it's going to be John Hillcoats, uh, who did the, because his depiction of the old West, like moves that genre past <laughs> like into like, like, as you said, into levels of horror, uh, like elemental yeah. horror. It's, I mean, and it's like startling, uh, like how well it puts up with in, in that environment. Um, yeah, it's got an incredible Ray Winstone performance. Uh, the use of flies in that film is yeah. amazing, <laughs> like yes. amazing. And it's it is one of the grossest film. Like it's beautifully gross. <laughs> like everything in there, you can just tell. Like everything stinks and is uncomfortable and slimy and. And yet it's just it's everyone's sweaty and uncomfortable. Yeah. And it, it, it does such a good job of setting like just just the just the feel of the film just through how everyone looks. And yeah. I, I absolutely love that. Yeah, movie. it is that the characters right are presented in such a sweaty, gross <laughs> manner that like surgically only would be green with envy. 
<laughs> now, 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 Brad, do you have any particular directors you'd want to? Well, yes, I, I'd I'd like to start out with uh, the film that may have uh, opened Australia up to uh, international audiences, even though it was uh, not directed uh, by an Australian. I, I've never seen a film capture both the beauty, the danger, and uh, just uh, the idea of Australia like uh, Walkabout, which oh, is uh, okay. Nicholas Rogue's uh, film about a uh, upper-class uh, family who, uh, when uh, their father uh, takes uh, his uh, teenage daughter and uh, y- young son uh, into the outback, uh, and this happens right at the beginning. It uh, kills himself. Uh, the uh, the two children are left to fend for themselves uh, with uh, only the the help of a uh, a teenage uh, Aboriginal uh, boy that they meet, who is uh, on the title uh, Walkabout, which is a tribal uh, tradition. Uh, and there, very few films have kind of the voodoo of location. That Nicely uh, put, walkabout man. does, where uh, every every shot is just so fraught with the uh, with the wilderness, with uh, with something that is wild and uncontrollable. It, it, it's an amazing piece of filmmaking and and an amazing kind of introduction to Australia in, in a cinematic way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, moving uh, much uh, much more recently, uh, and getting back to uh, to genre films, uh, the Baba Duke, which uh, came out a couple years ago, and I think is is just about the best horror movie of the last ten years, is uh, is an Australian film by a wonderful uh, director uh, Jennifer Kent. I did I didn't who, even realize that was Australian. Wow. Yes. Yes. And. Uh, and it basically deals with a, a mother and her son in an isolated situation where uh, the monster from a children's book uh, somewhat takes on a life of its own. And, and the, this, this is uh, just, you know, it, it, it's a psychological horror movie in the fullest, uh, fullest oh, sense of it. Oh, dude, man, like, <laughs> I, like... Yeah, the, I consider the Baba Duke is like calling the Baba Duke like a horror movie to me. It's like calling like Led Zeppelin a heavy metal band <laughs> because it's like okay, technically that's true, but you are so not capturing all the things that the Baba Duke <laughs> is doing. This is like an astounding to me. It's an astounding drama about grief yes. and loss mm-hmm. and revenge and and the relationships and and, str- and and the struggle and dealing with stu- with issues like depression. But they use horror to make those themes apparent. Right. It, 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 it's an overachiever in all those ways and incredibly suspenseful and works both on a supernatural yeah. and as a, as a family drama it, 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 and the lead, perform, lead actress and, and the young child. Yeah. Both give incredibly yeah. intense performances. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it I think really was the uh, uh, 
sh- shows the possibility of a of a of a renaissance of horror films. Well, uh, we're we are in the yeah. middle of one, mm-hmm. I think. Like, with, there's been a <laughs> spate of really quality horror films. Baba Duke stands um, on it, top. It of led that. the way. Yes. So, Al, what about you? Do you have some? I uh, picks I have for one us? particular director. I I I am a. That I wanted, that I want to go and promote for it, and it is um he he's an Australian director named Brian Trenchard Smith, and he's and he's kind <laughs> of like there's a set of like sort of retro films that are coming out which like take like take classic like eighties like lower and gives us a whole level of vibrancy and energy such as um uh, Kung Fury um uh, and and Trenchard Smith was doing that kind of film like and get uh, in the um. In the '80s, like, and he goes and like takes these films that have maybe kind of sketchy premises, but he imbues it with such a level of energy and fun and enjoyment, like the like he he kind of spins like cinematic entertainment out of like the most threadbare premises you can imagine, and nothing better represents that into like a film called Stunt Rock. Stunt Rock is. I cannot necessarily say how the qualities of a movie make it as an excellent as a movie, but as a piece of awesome that's put on film it is one of the like twenty the twenty best ever because it's literally about exactly its title like it's about a stuntman and who go a stuntman who spends fifty percent of his time engaging in these incredibly daring and uh, stunts. For like for different uh, movie shoots, and the other fifty percent uh, of the time, he is works as a stunt coordinator for a rockin' spinal tap level heavy metal band called Sorcery, who brings on like figures of devils and wizards and engage in pyrotechnic um, plays on stage, a la Iron Maiden. <laughs> and this, it's uh, the plot is so small, but. The guy, <laughs> the main stuntman, is who actually was a real stuntman who had no previous acting experience up to that point. He has such amazing, winning personality where he just has enthusiasm for everything he does, and yet a charming level of, of appreciation for how cheesy it is is the stuff that he does. And he, he does it with such a self-effacing manner that when you literally see these Jackie Chan-level stunts that he engages in, you actually feel for him and feel for the danger he puts himself in, but all making it like look effortless. And like and and uh, Trencher Smith does just such a great job of making it feel fun, entertaining, enjoyable, exciting, and just puts a smile on your face by the time like you it's finished with its runtime and makes you just wanna like wish for more, more stunts, more rock, more everything. <laughs> So that's kind of yeah that that would be and I would want to follow a lot more of of Trenchard Smith's uh, work and um oh it's fun yeah and his stuff's really fun yeah and like I think he's all he's <laughs> also kind of known for making a film called BMX Bandits featuring a very very young Nicole Kidman and um yep. uh, and like Turkey Shoot is good Dead End Driving is really fun I think his Leprechaun Four in Space is pure genius um uh, he <laughs> is he is one of the best bad movie makers yeah you will ever see like right he doesn't right he doesn't like he seems to have like that again it kind of harkens to he's kind of to dante like I, he takes these like yeah disreputable premises and makes them like makes them enjoyable for a mass audience yeah i would i would say like he is australia's roger corman kind ah. of. like he does a lot of producing too like his stuff has no like it's so fun like so fun leprechaun foreign space is the most absurd thing I've ever seen, and it's the most <laughs> ridiculously fun movie. Like, it is a movie literally in which a leprechaun possesses a space marine's penis. 
how does that work? I don't know, but it was amazing, and I'm so glad I saw it. Oh, and like, I mean, that's all his movies are just off the wall, and they're just they're so fun to watch. Like he to me represents ozploitation probably more than anyone. Like this, let's go for it. Like, and that's what it is. Our goal is to have fun, and let's see what we can do. And and that's what he does again. And he, he's still doing it today. Like the guys, he's also follow him on Facebook. He's super fun. Okay. <laughs> he's super fun. Great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like we may have a potential out candidate for an upcoming uh, director's club. Uh, like seeing for all the films that you're, that you're recommending on it. And uh, like, I seem yeah. to remember that Leprechaun Ford was not as good as Leprechaun back to the hood, but that might just be my nostalgia. Everyone, talking. Everyone's wrong. Everyone is wrong. <laughs> Leprechaun foreign space is easily the best Leprechaun. Movie. <laughs> and, and so, but yeah, so it was, yeah, but uh, I'll, I've found, like, Franklin, like, Franklin is so rewarding for exactly stuff like this, that he goes and, like, can point out, like, this whole area of film that, like, that all these potential enjoyable films that other people get to check out. So I'm uh, I'm uh, very happy, Matt, that you were able to go and join us to go and uh, give us a little bit of a, a showing of what, like, um, uh, Franklin and Australian, uh, Australian cinema can do. Um, where can people go and... Um, uh, listen or hear you do uh, like your um uh, your film and other impressions. <laughs> uh, my my stuff is found at wherethelongtailends dot com. Uh, I'm not doing a ton there at the moment because I'm also at school full time at the moment. Hopefully, eventually, I'll be I'll be doing more. Um, I'm also an occasional co host on the Row Three Cinecast over at Row Three dot com. I occasionally uh, drop into Film Junk and bug those guys over stuff. Okay, uh, and then you can also find me, also find me on Twitter at, at wtlte. Okay, uh, okay, great. And you can um, and you can find uh, us over at the Directors Club website, and we are available on iTunes at uh, also at Directors Club Podcast. We have a our our Twitter is also Directors Club. Uh, uh, at Directors Club Podcast, and for um, for uh, and you can leave us comments or uh, comments, criticism or suggestions for other like uh, films and directors uh, by sending it to Directors Club Podcast at Gmail Right, and uh, this was a blast, uh, Matt. Thanks for uh, bringing this uh, director to our attention. And what yeah, I thanks. wanted to uh, bring up before we uh, head out, uh, for those of you in the Chicago area, is uh, an upcoming uh, event at the Music Box that uh, is really cool. It's called the Chicago Critics Film Festival. And basically it's a, it's a festival taking place from May 12th to May 18th at the Music Box Theater that is curated, chosen by local Chicago critics, including uh, one of our friends and uh, regular uh, Directors Club contributor, Colin Suter. And so they've got a great lineup coming, probably uh, one of the most high-profile ones being uh, their closing film, A Ghost Story, which is the latest from uh, David Lowry. And uh, they're going to be... uh, bringing back Southland Tales with uh, Richard Kelly there to discuss. So again, if you're in the Chicago area... I'll bring the tomatoes. Uh, there you go. <laughs> well, he'll, he'll be there to answer for it. <laughs> but uh, yes, if you're in the Chicago area, uh, check it out. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. 
All right. Uh, yes, once again, uh, thanks, Matt, for going out and joining us. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a blast going out and exploring uh, this director and his films, and it leaves a lot more to like think about both his own work and uh, future Australian efforts. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a blast. Oh, awesome. Great. And, uh, and, uh, and we hope you guys uh, enjoyed listening out uh, for our exploration uh, to the uh, lands and films of Australia. And, uh, and look forward to joining, uh, joining us for the next episode of The Director's Club. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.